Welcome to the After the Battle Campfire, presented by the Modern Ronin. I'm your host, Tommy Chase, and I'll be your guide through the stories that are about to be told. Today I talk with my good friend, Adam Johnson. Adam joined the Marines out of high school and became a military corrections officer, which means he spent most of the time in the service working in the brig, transporting prisoners, and the like. He has a different side of the military he's seen. We talk military justice, military justice reform, and we talk about his life after the Marine Corps, going into the creative world of animation, and finally being called to return to his hometown and start working on a nonprofit to help veterans deal with traumatic issues. Please welcome Adam Johnson. Uh, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Just working on shit, riding a bike while it's still nice in November. That is true. So here I am. I'm back with my buddy, Adam Johnson, former Marine. Retired Marine, actually, right? Retired, yeah. Unfortunately. Unfortunately or fortunately? Uh, I honestly think I'd rather still be out there, but I don't know. I think that makes two of us. The way so, things I don't think I'd survive the Facebook and all that other shit out there. Oh, no. Yeah, no, that's that's becoming a big issue for everyone. Um, I just saw a video about, like, people are losing their shit in uh, A school, or I guess you guys call it MOS school. Yeah, yeah, because, job school, basically. Yeah, because you're not allowed to leave. Oh, no. There they are. Looking for yeah. my glasses. Yeah, you're, you're not allowed to leave... Uh, your school so you don't get liberty you don't get to go out in town or anything oh poor guys because of uh COVID. yeah they can't it's too dangerous yeah. but they're bringing up like weird valid points about well why can the instructors go home every day yeah and then they go out and do things they're exposing them just as much as the student i mean the regular students unless they're adhering to strict guidelines at home but even then the family members aren't it's, yeah. it's one of the things that kills me is these protocols that they're putting in place are, are ineffective at best Yep, and a pure money grab at worst. We'll leave it there. Let's, <laughs> this is a great way to start this podcast. Oh yeah. yeah. Get me started. <laughs> uh, so let's, uh, let's do what we always do. So Adam, I knew you from here. You were in the film community here in San Antonio. Um, yeah, yeah. We shared a little office space for a little yeah. while. But uh, more so, I also knew you as a Marine who was also, was your job title like officially MP? Um, so I was, uh, yeah, we were technically military police, but my specialty was corrections instead of uh, law enforcement, like on the street. So they're okay. 11s. I was a 31, but we would augment them. And we did other things like facilitated federal transport of prisoners, counseling, riot control, all sorts of other stuff. And we helped entry point control, things like that. Well, now, now you've gone literally home. You've went back to Indiana. Yeah. Um, so well, let's, uh, yeah. let's start from the very beginning. You grew up in Indiana, right? 
Mm-hmm. So what yeah, was born in born in Nevada, but I, I left before I remember being any, you know, have any awareness or any actual memory. So Indiana is where I, I technically call home. And you were from what I know about where you're at now, you you lived a pretty urban life or not urban, uh, rural life, right? Well, yeah, um, it's a small community in southern Indiana. We the the school I went to, the little town I lived in had is Greenville and it had one flashing light. There's not even wasn't even a full stoplight there growing up. Oh, wow. um, it connected to a little larger community outside of Louisville, but I mean, yeah, for the most part, it's uh, a farming community that's turning into Purdue's doing a lot of technology stuff here now, and there's some uh, industrial, more industrial stuff going on. But being right on the river, New Albany kind of came up doing that, and then it went away when all the other manufacturing jobs went away, and now we're starting to see some stuff come back a little bit. So, so how would you call yourself a true Indianan, Indiana? Or, I mean, because you always tell me that you're pretty damn close to the Kentucky border. Um, yeah, it's technically we're, we're uh, considered Kentuckiana. It's, it's like that close. Right on, I'm, I'm 10 minutes from the border. So a lot of uh, our city's tax codes and stuff include people that live in Kentucky or get, you know, work in Louisville, things like that. It's, it gets a little complicated, but it's, uh, I don't know. I think they call us Hoosiers, though. Oh, so you're still you're still claiming the basketball side. Um, I I've honestly never really been interested in basketball. Me, me neither. I'm just saying that I know that's like the, I, I, the, I don't, I don't that's get about it. San Antonio over the Spurs, but uh, yeah, don't get me started with that shit. It's, uh, it's fun to watch people burn cars over professional athletes. Oh yeah, who could buy 500 of those cars off their contract? Yeah. <laughs> so. Growing up, did you always have a desire to go into the military? Yeah, actually, I was looking in a well. Um, I I wanted to be in the army or law enforcement. I was actually looking through a scrapbook when I was going through some stuff in the house the other day, and it was like my kindergarten stuff my mom saved. And oh wow. it was Yeah, a little picture of me and what I wanted to be when I grow up, and it said soldier. I think that's before I knew what Marines were. You know, my grandpa was in the army, so I wanted to be like him. And then, you know, when I became a teenager, I wanted to do something to piss my family off. So yeah, you went and joined the Marines. Yeah. So sure. were you, were you athletic in school? Uh, I played football till ninth grade, but I did uh, mostly swimming, marching band and uh, theater and then uh, some radio TV stuff, which is what got me interested in film work and things like that. So now, uh, let's just say high school, when did you make, when did you, I guess, really start to differentiate soldier from Marine? Uh, I think when the recruiters started visiting, you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, when, when we were in high school, it was peacetime pretty much. I mean, we had Grenada and Bosnia kind of going on. I mean, Black Hawk Down happened when we were, when we were young, but I mean, for the most part, we were in peacetime yeah. as peacetime as we could have been. And, you know, I was, didn't want to be in Southern Indiana anymore and didn't really want to go to college. So I was looking for other options and went and visited the recruiters and basically every other recruiter, every other branch was telling me what they could offer me and tell me what they would give me. And the Marines asked me 
you know, asked me why I wanted to join. What do you want? Why, why should we let you? And, hmm. uh, that fascinated me more than them offering me, you know, X, Y, or Z thousands of dollars or whatever else. Cause I, I knew most of them were full of shit anyway, or sure. would find some way around it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what fascinated me and what made me end up picking that branch. So, so what, um, how quick after high school were you out the door? I actually, uh, I was in a delayed entry program for 364 days. Oh yeah. I joined, I joined, uh, made the decision my junior summer. I I wanted out that bad. I was, I was ready to go to the world and do stuff. So you were, you were in the delayed entry program for that long because you had to graduate. Basically. Yeah, I had, basically I had to graduate high school. Um, I, I, I signed as soon as they would let me and then went to, uh, you know, did my senior year. And actually, I got in a really bad car accident my senior year and uh, ended up almost disqualifying myself from service. Oh. But uh, ended up still getting waivers because, you know, there's waivers for everything. Oh, yes, there is. Um, and I didn't want to lose that number. I guess they were they were tough that month because it's not like the air force where you can work two days a week meet your quota and go home uh, yeah don't tell me uh, don't don't get me started on the air force i have a friend that i've been working with for the last 18 months and yeah it's ridiculous how pathetic the air force is with when it comes to like recruiting they just don't care they, yeah. they really don't go out of their way to people find them it's that it, they don't have to go hunting yeah so, uh, how did your parents take you deciding to go? My, I mean, I guess my mom was worried. My dad was pretty happy. Um, he actually ended up passing away the day after I graduated high school Ooh. in a car accident. So he never got to see me graduate or go to boot camp. But what was one of the last conversations I had with him actually was uh, the day I, I guess the day before I graduated or the day I graduated. I was getting ready to go out with some friends and he got to tell me, you know, Hey, I'm proud of you. Here's a hundred bucks. Go have some fun. And I was actually going, I went and got a tattoo later that day. Um, and when I came home, the police were here saying, you know, Hey, he'd been in a car accident. Um, and so we had to basically bury him and sort out his estate. And then 23 days later, I was on Paris Island. Did you ever question it after your, your dad died? question what going going no because i knew he was one i knew he was proud of me and two i knew if i waited to go that i would keep finding reasons to wait yeah and i i I would end up working as a mechanic or a freaking you know not not that there's anything wrong with those things but it's not what i wanted for myself right if i i kept waiting that it wasn't going to happen that's one of the things there's never a convenient time to make a life change and that's one of the things that he taught me growing up so, and I'd already signed the contract and that's something else he taught me. You know, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah. I mean, obviously that would have been, it's for someone who wasn't uh, as sure as you, that would have been an easy out. I don't think the Marines would have given you much shit for saying. No, I got to help out. my dad just died. Yeah. It would have been pretty easy. They actually, I think, I think it, it, that whole, besides getting a ticket on the way to my dad's funeral, that kind of whole period of time. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was late for something. I had to, uh, I had to go get my suit from the cleaners and I went to uh, over to the next town over to get my suit from the cleaners. And I was like running late and doing 
65 and a 55 on on highway 65 and a state trooper pulled me over and was like where are you heading i was like to my dad's funeral he's like oh hold on i'll be right back and uh like here's your ticket have a good day <laughs> <laughs> wow and i'm like wow uh well okay glad you got your quota dude but whatever yeah um so yeah uh other than that that whole time period kind of is blurry but yeah. uh I That's, forgot what was going with that. That, that. that is totally understandable. So you, um, young kid from a rural town, get on. Yeah, the big we had one, one, one black kid in our, uh, actually I looked when I was putting, when I moved back here to see what my kids would be dealing with. And I think the minority population at our high school is still around 6%. Oh, wow. That's still um, pretty small. But, you know, you go right down the hill to the to the city portion of new albany and it's you know 60 40 50 50 somewhere around there um oh. it's just yeah it's kind of that buffer where city meets country yeah it's not a lot not a lot of cross breeding over or bleeding over sorry not breeding <laughs> bleeding over I, I i guess that too to a degree um but you know it's uh it's interesting. I'm close enough to get to the city and, and go down to, uh, you know, it's, and they're doing a lot down in new Albany right now to revitalize everything, which is cool. Uh, a lot of local businesses popping up tax incentives for people that work and live in the city. So if you own a business and a home in the city, like you have tax bonuses, it's, oh, nice. you know, it's good. So, so where I was going with that was you get on the big magic uh, tube that flies in the sky. That and... was, yeah, that was my, second or third time on a plane going to paris island oh damn yeah Hi. so yeah the furthest i'd ever been before that was chicago and uh a couple of times we'd driven in a van to ohio to do some stuff when my dad was on a work trip so you get to uh i don't know what city it is it's near there where you where you end up landing um we actually we flew into charleston and I was talking to the guy in the seat next to me was heading to the same place. And I was, so we were like, man, I can't wait to go get a smoke right. You know, before all this shit starts and literally at the end of the gangway or the, the, what do they call it? The jetway. Uh, jetway. Yeah. Um, there's a dude and there's a drill instructor standing at the end of the, end of the jetway, like get in fucking line. You know, it's like, okay, we're starting this already. And you know, empty probably no chance to smoke or nothing. It's, from there on out, it was boot camp. That's what I was going to say, because I know for us, uh, when we got to Chicago, we got sent up to the, um, oh, God, what's it called? The USO. Because they only had, I guess they were only doing like one bus every 12 hours to Great Lakes. Yeah. So you like you would con you'd congregate there. But yeah. Um, they so somehow arranged it. So we all got there at the roughly the same time and then shipped our asses down. I guess it's like once a day or twice a day they do it. So what was the bus ride like to Paris Island? Uh, just quiet. People kind of reflecting. Looking around, talking. It was it was kind of late when we got in, so people were tired anyway. A and then I people fell asleep. That was a shock when they come running on the bus. I was gonna say then that the the typical promo video thing happens when you guys pull into Paris yeah Island. it's pretty much dead on from what the uh the videos show from that point so 
with the Navy, we had what they called P days, which were um, like get your seat, your basic sea bag. Boot camp didn't start till the end of your P days. I think it was like three or four days. Uh, we had a brief adjustment up. period, kind of. It was uh, forming basically where they formed us into, you know, uh, decided what battalion we were going to be in and then organized us into companies and platoons. And once, yeah, okay, same thing. You had that. There was like a, a Black Friday or something like that where you actually met your senior drill instructor and they introduced the whole crew. Okay, yeah. So, same thing. Um, what year is this? 2001. What? I left for boot camp June. 26th of 2001. Okay, Hold so. All right. So you were one of those guys, if I'm doing my math right, that either the end of your boot camp was September 11th or you had just graduated? I graduate. We were actually on A line um, or the Crucible. We were on the A-line portion of the Crucible on September 11th, and that was uh, interesting. Uh, we graduated September 21st, and there was nobody in the stands. Like we still had the graduation, but they didn't. Uh, they didn't let anybody on base. My my mom was actually able to get on base, and the only reason she was able to was because I was a federal employee, or she was a federal employee, and had. And had an ID ID that would allow her base access, but there were no planes flying or nothing. And I, I remember we were, we were out uh, doing our maneuvers on a line and they called a ceasefire and pulled us all into, you know, those thunder domes they have on Paris Island. Never been. Thank God. Okay. So they have them on a lot of bases. It's basically just a metal roof that people huddle under and open fields and oh, stuff. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. By lightning. Yeah. So they pulled us all under one of those and sat us down in formation and came out. And this is like the second day and we're all pretty tired and frustrated and just wanting shit to be over with. And they come out and they're like, the World Trade Center has been attacked and the Pentagon's been attacked and, you know, stand by for more information. And we're like, dude, we thought it was some part of like, uh, you know, a, an exercise. Like they were just trying to screw with us because we had already been sleep deprived and we're halfway through our, our training evolution. We just thought this was another exercise. And they're like, you know, then the base, uh, one of the base commanders comes out and they're like, no, this is real. And they pull buses up and they said, you know, uh, if you live in New York, get on this bus. If you live in Washington, D.C., get on this bus. And they took people to actually try to call their families and stuff. And we're like, OK, so this uh, is real. Yeah, so we finished our training evolution, came back, and when we came back from the Crucible and did the Warriors breakfast and everything, we still kind of like, we hadn't seen anything. Right. You know, we had a little bit of word from what our friends that went to New York and stuff saw, um, but it just, it wasn't real for us yet. And then when we got back, it, uh, it kind of hit home. We started watching news coverage and stuff, but by that time, they kind of already censored stuff and changed stuff around. Sorry, my roosters are going insane. You really are embracing this family or this farming life, aren't you? Um, yeah, it's really therapeutic. I get to hang out with them in the morning. And uh, basically, whenever I'm bored, I come out and watch them mess with each other. We've got three roosters, eight chicken hens, and then a mixture of uh, six different guineas that have all kind of merged into one flock. Oh, nice. Nice. 
Yeah, so they roam the yard and pick the bugs out and everything. But, you know, back to subject. Uh, yeah, that was a really wild time. Like, I wasn't sure. I actually didn't get recruiter's assistance out of boot camp because they needed me to go and do – they said they needed me to start training immediately. And I'm like, well, okay, if I got to start training, I got to start training. But then I get down there and they put me on six weeks of camp guard. And that is probably the most miserable duty I've had in my entire time in the Marine Corps. In, in 14 years, that, that six hours on, six hours off, standing in front of a gate or an armory and getting no break, no sleep, no nothing. That was, I mean, just expecting to start training and going into that was like just this, okay, this is what this is going to be. Yeah, yeah, no, I can totally see that being an issue. But let's go back to, uh, to boot camp for a second. So you you are one of the people that's actually had enough time after boot camp to see a difference. Was there a big difference in training pre 9-11 and post? Like, did you feel like a shift? We were, we were right on the cusp of training changes anyway. I mean, that we were one of the first, if, if not the first battalions, we were one of the first battalions to get issued our, our Marine Corps martial arts belt. You know, they replaced line training with the map with starting with us. And I did notice some train training changes, but I I've always tried to embrace training changes that make sense. Right. Because I don't want to get stuck doing stuff that no longer benefits us as an operational force. And if they figure out something better, then use it. Yeah, of course. Which makes sense, yeah. but people get so resistant to change. There's a difference between, you know, clinging to, to tradition. I understand integrating tradition into stuff, but you still have to be accepting of the ability to adapt. I mean, it's part of our motto and they get so stuck in the way we do things that it's like, hey, what about the, the part of improvising and adapting? Are we forgetting here? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, like you said, you leave boot camp and there, there's a weird familiarity to people that I've talked to recently with what's going on now with COVID. No, grad, no graduation ceremonies yet. They have the yep. ceremony, but no family and no, no recruiter assistance. They're being shipped straight off to their MOS school. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind of creepy, uh, parallel, just not. It's I, honestly, a couple months, but for almost eight months now that this has been going on with them it's the next evolution and the steps of control that are trying to be established you know we gave up a lot of rights and a lot of privacies after 9-11 because we were scared yep now we're scared again and we're giving up more exactly so speaking of which you going to um to train and stand in front of gates for six hours a day or six hours every 12 hours yeah. It was, yeah, it was six hours on and then you go back to the guard camp, uh, camp guard uh, barracks and sleep for six hours or do your laundry or shower or whatever you choose to do during those six hours at the barracks. And then you go back to shift wherever, you, whatever your post is. And, so, but you, you're, once you started training um, for the law enforcement side of it. Okay. Was, yeah. We went to Lackland after, after MCT at Camp, Camp Geiger, it was Lackland. That's right, because you, yeah. you had to go to you. I always forget this with the Marines. You graduate boot camp, then if you're 
a grunt, you go to School of Infantry. If you're ever anyone else, you go to MCT. And they make it. It used to be when it was originally, it was just infantry. They've integrated a lot of the combat arms MOSs into into SOI. Yeah. Um, and I actually even found out recently that they moved the Corrections Academy. I guess the Marine Corps and Navy had a falling out um, of some sort. Uh, but the Corrections Academy for the Marine Corps is at Leonardwood now with the MP school. It's no longer at uh, huh. Lackland. So I'm not necessarily, I'm not sure what the Navy's doing, but after the BRAC, uh, the BRAC stuff, I just. Yeah, the base realignment crap. Which I think was a, was a prep to set up the Space Force because they've, the, if you look, the Space Force has occupied a lot of those buildings and facilities and installations oh. that we shut down really that i did not know you're teaching me stuff here adam i'm, I'm learning but so talk yeah talk to me about your training that you went through for corrections there's not a lot to talk about i mean they they teach you a little bit of stuff uh it's it's only a four-week course that's it yeah it's it's a month of training and then they're like all right go go guard people you that do some basic like riot control Corps. stuff. You do some, you know, verbal judo. Not well at that time. It was, verbal judo was a new thing once we got to the fleet. Um, but yeah, a lot of your training is OJT stuff. Oh, really? So did they, I usually ask people how they felt in boot camp with the gas, uh, getting gas? But I know with your training, if it's anything like the uh, the Navy training, was there is a lot of gas in your school. Um. Or no, OC. Really. Uh, they do. They do OC. Not not as much of the uh, the uh, CS gas. Yeah. Um, they do deploy some, uh, some do practice munitions and stuff during riot training, or they used to. Um, but yeah, that's how how was that experience for you, personally? I would rather be tasered in training. And pepper sprayed in real life if that makes sense like i don't want to ever be pepper sprayed again like if i had to choose between the two and train because i in the real world i can fight through pepper spray but if they get a good upper lower displacement on or disbursement on me and actually connect i can't fight through that taser yeah no that makes sense so somebody is blowing my phone up hold on all right there we go all right. So you spend what, four weeks here in Texas. Did you ever think when you were here for training that you would end up here for uh, life and work? That was actually kind of when I, I spent time there, we actually did get, unlike with COVID, we got to go out and I got to go see the river walk and see San Antonio and ended up actually getting married a few years later to a, a girl that was from Austin or a woman that was from Austin uh, that I actually met through my hometown. She was up here with other family members, but she was originally from there. And um, that kind of became the goal during my career was to end up in San Antonio. Oh, wow! Um, I, I really liked it when I was there. It was, you know, awesome. But after moving there, because I visited several times on and off, throughout the years going to Austin going to San Antonio when I'd have leave and stuff but it changed so much when I moved there it didn't feel like it used to like even Austin because I was going to live in San Antonio for a little while and then go up to Austin and I started going up to Austin regularly to do you know take pictures and 
you know, go to Barton Springs and do stuff. And it just didn't feel the same as it used to. I've heard a lot of people who have been around this neighborhood for quite a while say the same thing. I mean, I didn't, I never lived there to experience it day to day, but just the feelings changed. Like the little kitschy local places all got replaced by corporate places. And it just felt like a place that was still trying to be hip. Yeah, no, exactly. That's basically what a lot of uh, the older residents who've been around for a while say. Kind of like what happened to Comic-Con in San Diego. Which we'll be surprised to see if that comes back next year. I don't know. I kind of like these virtual meet and greets, though, because you actually get to talk. From what I've seen, you actually get to talk with the stars a little bit. Like they give you like five minutes for whatever an autograph time would be, and you get to converse with them. And Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat little thing, and they don't have to worry about getting followed home or you know stabbed in the in the parking yeah, lot. The, the, they're more than happy to stay home in a. <laughs> oh yeah, do it in your freaking with no pants on. That's that's the goal in life is to earn money and and live life with no pants, right? Yes, that well, that's what I'm doing right now. No underwear yeah. too. <laughs> no, so okay, so you do your four weeks at Lackland. Yeah, and where do you go first? I uh, went to Lejeune. You were really hated by the Marine Corps, weren't you? Yeah, they didn't like me at all. I didn't even, honestly, MP was my third choice. I was supposed to go Intel, nuclear, biological, chemical, or MP. And believe it or not, because I was a cannabis waiver, they thought MP would they be made better. me a cop. <laughs> oh, God. So, um, <laughs> Was that yeah, a? Like I said, there's waivers for everything, but were you... even sniffing kids, they'll make you president. True, maybe we'll see. Um, yeah, with at uh... least vice president. True, that's very true. What was I going to say? Now you just got me all thinking creepy Biden stuff. Um, what the hell was I going to say? Oh, so were, were you a? Uh, were you one of those guys that went into boot camp without a job guaranteed? No, I, I knew I was going to get my field. And again, they don't really tell you that or didn't mind. Didn't, I guess I didn't understand it properly or ask the right questions. Um, but, you know, they guarantee the field. So I knew I was going to be an MP. Just not. But with I, the... I didn't know corrections was a thing. Yeah. So when they're, I was like, they're like Johnson, you know, they're, um, they're sitting at MCT at combat training and they're like reading off lists and names and where they're going. I'm going to go get to Johnson. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm going to Leonard Wood for MP school. And they're like, no, you're, you're going to Lackland. You're doing corrections. And I was like, what the fuck is corrections? And they're like, oh, you're going to be a brigger at. And I was like, well, guess we'll find out what this is. But I mean, San Antonio is better than the middle of nowhere, Missouri. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. So you get to Lejeune, uh, I'm assuming private first class. Uh, yeah, I was a PFC at the time. Yeah. So what was uh, corrections like for a young kid like you at that time? Oh, it's super weird as a job field because um, you're like, you know, I don't even know how to explain it because I'm this 19 year old kid, 18 year old kid. You, I think at the time you had to be 19, but we had some 18 year olds get in there again on waivers. Um and it's just so strange because you're dealing with like 
some of the guys you're watching have been first sergeants and colonels and whatever, and they're just wearing these orange uniforms, but you're 19 and trying to get, you know, 40 and sometimes 50 year old men, I mean, I guess at latest they'd be 40, but 30 and 40 year old men, guys twice your age to do and say what you want them to and behave how you want them to. So it's really kind of this weird power mind fuck that messes with a lot of people's perceptions on life. Uh, especially if they were bullied or beat up in high school, you know, and, and they try to teach you. It's always been, especially with law enforcement training, it's an us versus them mentality. So they're the bad guys. But a lot of these guys, you know, some of them are late for work. Some of them, their commands just don't like them. I mean, some of them are actual bad people who are touching kids and killing people. But, you know, it was used as a behavior modification tool, really, in my eyes, more than um, which I guess jail, that's what jail is supposed to do is modify your behavior. So you do what you want, but you know, the behaviors you're modifying are more extreme, like stop being late for work. So you were at the brig on Lejeune then, right? Yeah. So what, what level of, um, inmates would you have? So there are basically in DOD corrections, there were at my time, there were three levels of confinement facilities. You have level one, which will hold people for pretrial and up to a year, uh, like Okinawa. So if they get more than a year in Okinawa, we send them back stateside, usually to Camp Pendleton to serve the rest of their, their, their sentence. Okay. Um, and then at level two, which is what Camp Lejeune was, it was, uh, we, we held them from a year. We would do pretrial too. We had a whole squad bay just for pretrial, uh, pretrial prisoners. Uh, but they could hold people up to 10 years. So oh. if you had 10 years in a day and there was a bed available at Leavenworth, which is our only level three facility, which is our death row and our life inmates, we hold there. Um, if you had 10 years in a day and there's a bed open at Leavenworth, we would send you to Leavenworth. Oh, okay. Okay. Just trying to get my head around that. So you the would military have court martial and justice system is so dicked up. It's well, cause I think people think the only place you really end up serving time would be Leavenworth. And if you, every, like, everything else. Time, anything over 10 years. Yeah. That's yeah. where most of but your yeah. guys get, I mean, I, we'll get guys I, back for like, appeals and parole yeah. hearings sometimes and something like that but i wouldn't have, i wouldn't have even thought that uh you would see someone for more than a, a year at a at the local brig level i didn't realize it was yeah we believe multi-year guys for i mean hell uh it would have been during your time but one of them that you know one of our major drug dealers that got seven years he spent all his time at, at lejeune oh wow okay so now I know with the again you were just saying that the military justice system's a little wacky to to be quite frank. It's fucked. But yeah. yeah. Um I do know that you can get confinement with uh NJP which means for people who don't know what that is non-judicial punishment it can be handed out by a CO of a unit I think has yeah, to be at least a battalion. Normally they reserve confinement for a court martial. Um, there's some weird circumstances where they do stuff. You got guys that are ships are in port or things like that. Um, 
but there's a lot of little weird rules that you have to be very knowledgeable about. And that's why a lot of that is OJT. You can't generalize a lot of these situations. You have to dig into the, the minutia of the manual for court martial and the Julian calendar and all kinds of other things to figure out how you have to treat this guy exactly. And you know, how many good days he gets back and if he's participating in programs and there's just, there's a slew of things that you have to consider on a case by case basis. And I, I honestly think another month or two of training in the specifics of those could benefit people. But a lot of it, like I said, OJT and apprenticeship is you learn more by doing yeah, definitely. for most part with people. So I know um, if my job school was anything like yours, they'll tell you, Hey, you remember everything you learned at, I mean, I know you were a corpsman, so I hope they didn't necessarily do this, but they're like, everything you learned at your school, forget that shit. This is how we do things. Thankfully. No, they, that's not. Yeah. There's a lot, there, there is aspects of what they taught you at core school get, that get thrown out. Um, when you get to say them. Practical. Yeah. Like the, the whole, no, people will lose their shit over this one. The whole idea that you're going to wear gloves uh, when you're on the battlefield treating a Marine because you got to stick them for an IV eh, doesn't yeah. happen. Uh, yeah. the, the exact steps that you would use to do um, an IV insertion, you find the way that works, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, but taking I, the time to put the gloves on could cost a guy's life. It's not... Or are you even going to are you even going to sit there and have gloves if you're yeah. running and gunning at that point in time. Yeah. Um, all of that said, so people get it. A PFC is the second lowest rank in the Marine Corps. And so I take it you had a lot of shit work to do too. Yeah, it's a lot of, there was a, the like the least favorite position was basically, you know, second deck turnkey. And it's basically a metal cage, a little smaller than like a broom closet like a small broom closet. I could, I could reach my arms out both ways and touch the walls. And in one of the ways I couldn't even stretch my arms out the entire way, but you'd basically sit in there for hours and you just push buttons to open doors. Oh, they call you say, you know, open, open cell 26. So you open cell, you know, on, on it's yeah. See, I thought you were describing some sort of weird Marine Corps solitary confinement uh, cell. No, so, that was the actual work post. You got, I mean, they let you out for chow and stuff, and there's a little window they can hand you stuff through. But for the most part, it was basically secure functioning of facility to open doors when they're called but and make sure the prisoners couldn't get to them, but you're kind of a prisoner at the same time. Well, hey, you, you had to relate working, somehow. We're working 24-hour shifts. Oh, Ooh. So, you know, you, you're on post for 24 hours, you get some downtime, you get some breaks, but for the most part, you're in that prison for 24 hours. So did, at the time. did we they... had guards with mattresses where we could sleep and stuff if we had enough people, but sometimes the manning's low, so you don't get to sleep. You just sit there. Did they have like a trustee program or anything like that? We did. Yeah. They go up and clean out grounds and they'd work at some of the offices on base and do stuff. Um, and we'd go clean up the base. We'd send, you know, 10 prison, 10 low custody prisoners out with, uh, with a guard or two. And they go clean up the, from the gate back to the prison, you know, that five or six miles, whatever it is. So were they, they were, re, I, I'm assuming they were responsible for taking care of, um, like the day-to-day -day cleaning of the actual brig then, or was yeah, that you they guys? Yeah, the facility. They shined and polished and did everything. They cooked most of their own food until, until Sodexo 
took over the chow halls. Oh, okay. So the civilian contractor. We had Marines back there. And then Sodexo took it over. And like we used to train the uh, prisoners in culinary arts. And Sodexo kind of kept doing that. But, you know, the quality of the people hired by Sodexo to facilitate the running of their chow halls uh, leaves a lot to be desired. So we had a lot of contraband coming in through there and damn other issues. So. I don't know. I don't know if it's still the same. Like I said, I've been I've been retired for five years now, and for a year before that, I was at Wounded Warrior Battalion. So yeah. So did you um, did you have female inmates, or were that was that completely separate then? There was a, like a case by case basis where we would get a female, and we did have female guards, but it was an all male facility, and so oh, okay. normally we would keep our females out in county where they have a female population. Um or they would get sent to Miramar or uh, I think Chesapeake may have females now. I'm not sure, but Miramar was the uh, basically the female brig. And so were, were the people getting confined mainly felons or were there uh, misdemeanor cats? It depends on how much your command likes you or not. That's, that's the really fucked up thing about military corrections oh, and military... Really? justice it, it really depends because you'd see colonels that you know get to keep their retirement and get six months or get you know 30 days and get to keep their retirement for things that a lance corporal and another unit got a year for and a bad conduct discharge you know where i was going with that is for the most part people who go into the brig don't stay in no once they're confined they're they're pretty much guaranteed to get discharged either on a, other than honorable or bad conduct or or straight up dishonorable discharge anybody that commits a felony generally gets a dishonorable discharge but there are a lot of ways to upgrade that too and that's one of the things the counselors can help with and stuff in the facility and that's another job i had on later down the line was counseling these guys which was really just not my favorite thing so you went from you went from school to lejeune how long do you spend on the east coast I spent actually total my first eight years because my second duty station and uh, I moved from after oh it was Amazon I hate Amazon <laughs> oh anyway um what was I saying you uh, spent the first eight years after Lejeune you went to yeah we went to Charleston I went so... to Charleston and uh, that was working as the, at the Marine Detachment at the Navy facility. And so that was interesting. I ended up working as like a, for a while, I was a watch commander. I, I got up to the rank of sergeant while I was there. So I worked different jobs like watch commander. So I was in charge of the whole watch section. Um, and then I was study. we would help do uh, duty break supervisor, which is like the CO's representative when they're gone or the watch officer kind of at night so mid, um, mid, mid to upper level uh supervisory roles then yeah and uh, you know uh leading petty officer was my technical title with, for a housing unit basically i was in charge of their recreation and stuff like that oh, okay. making sure that all their behavioral stuff was in order and that their parole packages and stuff were together for the counselors and stuff like that so so we got to do a wide variety of things in the whole corrections aspect there. I also did uh, 
armed escorts where we would fly prisoners on commercial aircraft uh, from facility to facility. So what so, was that like? It made me realize how oblivious most of America is because I was walking guys that, you know, uh, you know, from death row inmates down, uh, you know, through airports in handcuffs and basically, you know, yeah, we do things to conceal them. Like we put a windbreaker on them and put their hands in their pockets and then handcuff them. Right. You know, just things like that. Keep it low key. But for the most part, people are just so tied up in their own lives that they have no clue what's going on around them. So did, were you guys in uniform or out of uniform for those? No, it was all in civilian attire. It was actually that program. We helped establish it in Charleston after nine 11 to help augment, uh, the, uh, air marshals as well. Okay. So you weren't just doing, uh, military transport. It was, it was, it was like a convenience thing. Kind of like if we got on a flight and the air marshals were already on a flight, they would go find another flight. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Guns on that plane. So how was it? I take it. It wasn't just you by yourself, you and the inmate. No, you always flew with a partner. You and your, you and a partner always fly together. That was, it was a cool experience. I got to see a lot of the country, got to travel a lot, built up a, I don't think I used the last of my airline miles from that until like a year or two after I retired. Oh, wow. See, that's cool. It was a lot of airline. (laughs) So during this time, did you, uh, I know you probably get this all the time when you talk about stuff like this, but did anyone try to run on any of these flights or transports? I never had a guy try to run for me. We've had, and I never had a guy escape on my watch. We had a couple of suicide attempts and some other weird stuff like that uh, go on, but I never, nobody ever died on my watch. Nobody ever escaped on my watch. And well, that for me was a win. Yeah. So did, uh, as a Sergeant, did, did you decide that you were set for 20 by that time, by the time you got done with North Carolina? Yeah, by, that, by the time I made it to Charleston, I had kids and was married. And so at Charleston, I bought a I just lost you. Okay, there you go. You, you cut out. You said you had kids and... And, and needed to figure it out. So, um, I, yeah, I was pretty set on it by then. So where'd you go after Charleston? Went to Japan for a year by myself, which was a really cool experience. I got to go to Okinawa and it was, I was a sergeant, I was basically the only 27 year old with a bunch of 19 year olds, um, 19 and 20 year olds. And I didn't have a cell phone for a year. It was awesome. <laughs> so it was like, a good detox. Like when I signed out at the barracks, because you, you know you still have to do that stuff when you're in a foreign country, but you sign out of the barracks, nobody could find me for, I, I didn't have an electronic leash. I was gone till I got back, and it was it was wild. No, no blackberries, no command, uh, no command issued shit. <laughs> no, they they wouldn't buy it for sergeants there, and I told them they're like, you need to buy a cell phone. And I said, nope, my my phone is barracks number unless you want to buy me a phone. Hey. You know, I love it when commands try to tell you, you need this. It's like, oh, yeah. not part of my sea bag. And it's not, oh, God, I've got the word uh, gear that commands individually use. Um, damn it, the Navy has a word for it. Like the, certain uniforms like flight suits are fall in that weird category. But yeah, you're not going to tell me I need yeah. to go spend my own money 
to buy you something. Not yeah, You already took all my money for the gear you gave me. I'm not going to spend more that I don't have to. Yeah. I mean, I, though, I think 90% of everyone else in Okinawa, probably the first thing they did when they got off the plane was got a new cell phone so they could, so yeah, that they could be in touch uh, and everything. So this is what, 2008, 2009? Yeah, it is. Um, and so... I did have my computer. I would talk to my kids and stuff every day on that. But for the most part, it was, you know, I got to kind of, I'd had some medical issues briefly and, you know, I got to do a thing. I went to, and that's where I kind of re-found my passion for swimming. Cause right down the hill, we had a really nice pool from the barracks and you can swim year round. Were you in camp, uh, camp Hansen? Yes. Okay, so you were by uh, all the recon guys were over there, I think. Yeah, they, they were on Hanson and Schwab. Yeah. Yeah. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear you. Okay, good. So, so I mean, where I was going with that is where, where they are, nice facilities come along with it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and we had, uh, you know, White Beach not too far away. But I would go, I stopped running when I got there because, I mean, my knees were just broke. Um. And I went and started swimming every day. I swam twice a day and really got back into it, doing some serious workouts. And I dropped four minutes off my run time. Oh, wow. Running for six months and just doing the cardio in the pool. So did you, um, did you become athletic as a Marine or did, were you just running to run for your PFA? PFA. I, I only exercise when I yeah. have to. To, to make standards basically yeah i do i do the required pt and i'll do i do athletic stuff like i love playing volleyball i really love swimming i like going out and doing athletic things but i don't like being forced right to do things it's, i know as weird as a marine because you're pretty much forced to do everything but you know that is true if you, if you tell me hey you have to do this i'm gonna do that and i'll do no more than that yeah but if no. you say, hey, how do we do this? You know what I mean? And that yeah. comes in leadership leadership styles and techniques too. So, and that is something you get good at in a prison environment because you're always having to direct people and tell people. So you get to really learn a lot about how people are in a position of power. So what was it like? Just straight up dicks for no reason because they can be. That is very true. So what was Okinawa like for the prison environment then? Um, it, it's a small level one facility. And in fact, there were so many sergeants there that I went and did like, right when I got there, I went and spent two months and did the, uh, investigators course. So to do like the CID school. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, it's one step down from the NCIS school, but it's, you know, you still get to go work with CID and stuff. So I, I got to go do that right away. And then there were still so many people there. And we had a newer sergeant that really didn't have as much experience working in the facility. So they made me the barracks manager. So I was basically in charge of like all the barracks room for MPs and the, and the brig guys. Oh, okay. So you weren't really dealing with inmates at that time. And not, it was, it was almost like a year off. Like oh. it was like the guy before me, he didn't, didn't do whatever he was supposed to do. I mean, he might've been handed a pile of shit, but, um, I got everything organized and inspection ready. And once that was done, it was like 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day to maintain. And then I would just go around and harass junior troops. Because that's what sergeants do. Exactly. Make sure they're behaving and obeying 
the rules and regulations about the base. So up until this point in time, had you had to use any of your riot training? Um, yeah, we've had, we had, you know, cell maneuvers we had to do. We had some disturbances and stuff. Um, but no actual riot riots where we had to break out the tear gas and the, and the shotguns and stuff. So you get that year in Okinawa and then what happened? So I went back, I made the choice to go back to Charleston because that's where my house was. That's where my kids were. And if I didn't have to move them, then it was less stress on the family. Um, so I went back there and was there for a while and got promoted to uh, staff sergeant. And then they sent me to uh, Camp Pendleton. So what was the, how was the move from the East Coast to the West Coast? It's like living in another country and, oh. and, a, whole, and a whole different Marine Corps. It's, it's really weird. The culture within, the, within a, a community that small anyway, the, the way things are done. And I hear I've never been, I still haven't been to the Hawaii break, but I've heard Hawaii is a whole other animal too when you get out that way. So were the, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to say the crimes, but were, were, was the mentality of the prisoners different between coasts? I mean, when the mentality of the Marines are different, the mentality of the prisoners are going to be different, but it's going to be the same within that culture. Okay. You know what I mean? Like the lingo used on the West Coast and stuff is all going to be similar, so it's not going to feel out of place. Yeah. But I mean, was one one set of prisoners more aggressive than... I I, I don't really... That's Again, that's on the individuals, and I try not to look at them as like, oh, these prisoners, because they're not their individuals. And if I'm, you know, going, these prisoners are bad or these prisoners are all pieces of shit, then I might as well be going these black people or these Asians or these white people or these Mexicans or whatever else. I mean, no, that, that makes total sense. And, and I, I do think our society, once you have a criminal record, thinks of you as definitely an other. It changes people's perspective a lot of the time. Quit, dog. Dog's chewing on my nightstand or my <sighs> entertainment center feed your dog she's been fed and thrown rope and beat repeatedly because she tore apart a pillow that's why i get her she gets exercise i let her out chase the chickens all day every day (laughs) i don't really beat her either so don't call pita on me so um no but you have a good point about the prisoners versus the individuals who are in prison for lack of a better way of putting it yeah Did, did um during all this time, how, what was going through your head as far as what you're seeing? Is there any chance for reform in the military justice system? We from did the inside. I was in. They changed some of the, you know, some of the rules about, uh, you know, the sexual assault rules and stuff. Because basically, before I think 2012, anything but missionary position was illegal in the Marine Corps. Or, or the, the Navy and Army and DOD in general. So let's take a break from this line of talk and explain something that I keep forgetting that people don't probably have no idea. So the law, the rules and the laws that dictate military life is called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Yep. It's extremely old, to say the least. 
um and things it was written are, around the time the constitution was wasn't okay i didn't realize it was that old it I, might have been shortly after but i mean those rules the first rules came into play i mean but they we adopted a lot of them from the british army and and yeah. services what i was gonna say is like uh so things like you just said positions of having sex um are jailable offenses whereas yeah. that would never fly in the civilian world and what people also don't understand is Theoretically, double jeopardy exists in the military, which is being tried for the same crime twice. As long as it's a crime in the real world, too, and a civilian was involved, it can be. There, there's a lot of weird stipulations and complications there as well. But, yeah, you can – it's it's really weird. We've let guys go from our facility just to get picked up uh, by U.S. Marshals. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking – And that's really sad, honestly, that, like – at the time, it's funnier because the prisoner's an asshole or whatever. But these guys think they're getting out and walking to freedom and going to go Burger King and have it their way. And they step outside our doors and there's two marshals waiting for them to throw them in the back of a car and take them to another jail. Oh, wow. You know, I, was, that's, I, I was just thinking as simple as some things. Now, I know it doesn't have it's not necessarily uh, going to a court martial, but drunk driving DUIs. If you get a DUI out in town and you, you go to court out in town and you can go to court normally normally what they will do is the solicitor and the ma base magistrate will get together and go okay which one of us wants to handle this yeah well I, 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 something it almost always goes out in town yeah i've, I've seen and then what they'll do is they'll get them arrested and do all the stuff out in town and then charge them ua unauthorized absence yeah. for the time he was in jail and then throw him back in our jail I've seen that happen too. Right. And I was thinking more along the NJP side where, you know, you're going to go spend. You restrict them after and they get screwed out in town. Yeah. yeah. Thousands of dollars on your DUI. And, and we've had judges, we've had judges let our guys like literally, even they'll take them and uh, let them serve the weekends. Yeah. You know, you can serve Friday to Saturday, Friday to Sunday. We'll let you have to go back to work on Monday morning. So I don't know. It's just everything. It's 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 a profit driven system on the civilian side now. And it's. I get the intention behind the, the need for discipline and everything else, especially in a combat or on a shipboard environment. But back at base, the court martial power, honestly, I think needs to be removed from the commanders. Yeah, at least well, the direct commanders. Yeah, I would say uh... I would like to see a panel an independent panel per each base that just handles that stuff. Well, you know, there, there are, every base has JAGs. Every base has, uh, but the JAGs work for the commands. They work with, for the, for the battalion legal officer. They go, you know what I mean? It's all intertwined and buddy, buddy. And you know, well, that's just, that's just like the civilian world. I mean, I hate people are refused to admit it and we'll get into this later, but uh, DAs and cops are almost, inseparable you know a, a da is always probably going to end up defaulting to i got to work with these guys every day well that's that's why that's one of the reasons i think the brianna taylor case was so messed up because you yeah. know the, the the kentucky state attorney general was was tied in ways and for uh you know in some ways to the beginnings of that investigation that whole thing but freaking stinks yeah. and it's not about race 
yeah we'll 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 come back to 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 that weird entanglement but yeah, um it's been interesting to watch so let's talk about something that you brought up earlier there's a certain mindset that you have to have to not be a shitbag and abuse people who are theoretically at their most vulnerable point sitting in jail with no rights oh yeah because was that an issue around they'll end up in a cell naked really you know oh yeah so was that an was that an issue act like you're gonna hurt yourself you're gonna end up in a cell in your underwear was that an issue ever that you saw with some of the guys that you worked with uh going too far or i always tried to make sure that it didn't happen i if it was my watch section and somebody you know they didn't They didn't work on that spot anymore if i had anything to say about it you know if i knew there was a personal interaction or somebody didn't like somebody i, I would make them avoid it and it's hard to, not to develop that stuff when you're working with people every day which is why we would rotate posts and stuff like that but there's also a degree of well fuck, if i tell on this dude or or don't i would always try and address it with the person first and fix it there right and normally that, that handles it or they don't do it in front of you anymore because they know you're not cool with it. But did you have, but, did you see guys who, I guess, for lack of a better word, were sadists uh, make it through the program? They're Marines. Every Marine to a... <laughs> that is true. But, but it, there were there were extreme cases. Yes, I have seen extreme cases. Nothing I want to get into or name, but... Right. But did, do those things get swept under the rug or do they get fixed? It depends on if they like the person or not. Oh, it's one of those systems. Like any other system. Do they like the officer? Do they want to protect him? What's his family name? Yeah. So you were you guys like the MPs uh, badged officers? Yeah, we had. We, we, there were times uh, we lost our badges for a little while because I guess somebody was going out in town and pretending to be an MP. Um, so they took the badges from the whole MOS because you know one person screws up, everybody's got to pay. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I don't really see a reason to have a metal pin that big behind the wall. Um, I would rather see a sewn-on badge or something like that yeah. from a safety standpoint. Um, right. And you can't lose it that way too, which was another concern and issue. But I mean, yeah, we were badged. But I mean, when, when I met by badge, so you were a, a I don't know not why I, I'm technically you're not a credentialed law enforcement. Okay. Officer. That, that's what I was going for. I didn't get any kind of credential credentials besides a badge until I started doing the armed escort thing. Cause then you are carrying a, a firearm on credentialed fire. Yeah. Care, a credentialed badge carrying law enforcement officer in the sky. Kind of, I, I, it was a weird thing. Cause because we could act if we needed to on a plane because when it pushes back, this is more Patriot Act stuff, 9-11, post 9-11 rules. When a plane pushes back from the gate now, it is no longer, you know, civilian property. It is now a steerable weapon of mass destruction. Seriously? Yeah, look it up. Type into Google sometimes, steerable weapon of mass destruction. Wow. Okay, that's a new one I didn't know. Because the plane's flying into towers and shit. So then it's federal property. Posse comitatus is not a factor. And so therefore we can carry guns and act 
and augment the marshals on aircraft not in the airport itself you know there's those kind of stipulations uh to prevent abuses of authority and stuff not like that ever stopped anybody but um yeah damn so back in in north carolina you're back there now staff sergeant so you're south now south carolina no i, I well south i didn't i got promoted staff sergeant and pretty much straight away when you get promoted staff and co they especially in small mos communities they shoot you to another duty station oh okay so where'd you go after you got picked camp, up camp pendleton that's right i'm sorry i was getting my things backwards and, and my medical issues started catching up with me and stuff and uh a few misdiagnoses by the navy medicine teams in some places um how dare you <laughs> they uh i had some bone spurs in my neck or uh, bone fragments in my neck that they didn't catch until they were wrapped up in my brachial nerve Ooh. um and taking those out runs a high risk of damage in those nerves which leads to loss of function of my right arm which is already not as good as it was but um anyway yeah so you you're at camp elton you're going you're starting the new job yep had two shoulder surgeries while i was there uh died from the first one pretty much i was in icu they had me on bank of myosin they were going to fly me to ucla uh, if my temperature and stuff didn't go down because i went septic 30 days after the surgery so you uh had a i take it a bad infection yeah yeah it was super bad um they did really good though um they didn't have to fly me back and then I uh, had a second surgery and it didn't go as well as it should have either. So I ended up going to uh, Wounded Warrior Battalion. So this I, is 2013, 14-ish? Yeah, 13-ish, uh, yeah. I got there 2012, worked at ACA, and uh, which is a whole nother fun, the American Corrections Association, all the, uh, it's like CLIA. Uh, it's, uh, oh, so it's a, it's a certification. Standards and certifications that's all they do is they go around and make sure jails aren't, you know, harvesting organs and shit. So the, I'm assuming this was the Marine Corps version or was this the, no, we actually got our first, uh, when I was there, we got our, our first hundred percent for the Marine Corps, uh, oh, wow. ever. It's a civilian accreditation association. It shows that we're in compliance with civilian correction standards too, which is really hard to do with the UCMJ. I was going to say so more stringent. Yeah. They're, they, we had to negotiate some, wording and stuff and some of the standards and say hey we can't do this but Damn. it all got worked out so what was your as you're what now you're 12 years in staff sergeant yeah over the hump over that 10-year hump that everyone makes their choice you knew that this was going to be a lifestyle for you yeah i was actually getting ready to do a warrant officer package oh when I, went, when I went to uh Wounded Warrior Battalion. I was working on it. So what what is the warrant for uh, for your MOS? Or were you going to leave the MOS? No, actually, our MOS is one of the very few. We don't have any commissioned officers. Oh, wow. Okay. So all of our officers are warrant officers. And for those that don't know, warrant officers are basically subject matter experts in their field that were enlisted prior. They're like had kind of this weird gray area between enlisted and officers. Yeah. A buddy on another episode, I've got with it was, I think it was Jules. Um, my buddy, who's a dive guy. Uh, apparently there's a ton of dive warrant officers. Yeah. In, it's in, very, in that, 
yeah very subject matter related you have to be you, you know you'll die if you don't do it right yeah and he would and much like you it, the, the easiest way to explain it is there's commissioned officers who are college graduates and honestly that enlisted. that in itself is something i would love to see go away commissioned officers well the being in charge because you went to college i get i i, I have yeah. friends that did both were enlisted prior and were officers first i think everybody should start at the bottom yeah i mean there there's still a need, and work your way through there's still a need for an officer corps there's still a need for the, the commissioning has nothing to do with the education it's um well, have you met some of the officers? It has nothing to do with the ability. Yeah, no, but I mean, the commission comes from it. You're being commissioned I would by just the like government. To see our officer yeah. corps, if we are going to keep it established through merit. Yeah, other oh, than absolutely. My bachelor's degree in underwater basket weaving from DeVry. Yeah, well, I mean, and the Navy kind of plays there slightly because they have their limited duty officer program. Well, yeah, Wait. and they do like specific, like you're a doctor. Okay, cool. Yeah. But, uh, one one podcast I listened to cleared hot. Uh, Andy Stump, former SEAL, he got picked up for the LDO program, became a you know an ensign overnight. No college at all. Yeah, yeah. So and you had an E6 who had been do, doing the SEAL thing for 15, 12, 15 years, and then and they needed them. Yeah, they needed this. Then that's the same. LDOs and chief warrant officers are kind of the same. Yeah. So how close were more the LDOs than we do? But how close, how close were you to actually putting that package in? I don't even remember. Damn. I feel bad for you, man. What would, uh, what would your position have been? Had you gone LDO or a warrant officer? I would have been in charge or like a department head of prisoner management or one of, one of the departments within the, facility usually is where they start they'll make you like the security chief or somebody like that and then you know as you get by the time you're a chief warrant officer three or four you're running the whole facility so you're the commanding officer of the facility oh okay so is it similar to provost like a provost marshal kind of but they're officers oh okay I see. I'm learning as we're going here, and I know we've talked about this. You know, we do. They do have MP officers, but they don't have corrections officers. I'm. It's not something I've never really understood. So, talk to me about your experience at the Wounded Warrior Regiment Battalion, whichever one's on the West Coast. That was actually a really good time. Like, I hate to say it, it was a really good experience. Looking back. I was miserable when I was there because I was in pain and I was, they were running me through every different medication they could think of in combination to try and, you know, manage my pain and any mental health issues and other stuff. I was 225 pounds, which is the heaviest I've ever been in my life from the medications and stuff. Um, and at the time it was, you know, when you go to Wounded Warrior Battalion, your, your commands are still kind of supposed to come and see you, like, weekly. Yeah, they say. And, and that really didn't feel like it happened. But at the time, it felt like they were just kind of writing me off. And I, I was like, well, fuck, if they don't talk to me, I don't want to talk to them. So, whatever. And so, so after 90 days, I stayed there for the next year. 
finishing my medical appointments, having another surgery, passing more kidney stones than I care to count, and uh, eventually retiring. Did they, um, what's, how am I trying to phrase this? Did they, your command, the, the, the brig command. Yeah. Did, did they treat you differently as you started to go through your medical decline? Yeah. I mean, once you stop, but they have to, to a degree, once you stop becoming useful, they got to find somebody to fill that spot, but you know, the support, you know, and being new to that side of the, of uh, being new to California, I didn't know as many people, but it, yeah, it kind of felt like they were like, okay, he's gone with fuck ever. Yeah. Like, uh, but they didn't give you shit or anything like that for seeking out the medical help. I, I can't say it was for that reason, but shortly after I got my hundred, the hundred percent for the facility. And I mean, it wasn't just me. It was a ton of people working, but I was involved in it. I got the worst fit rep I've ever gotten in my life that would make sure I wasn't going to get promoted to Gunny ever. Oh, really? And I was like, okay, at this point, it's like, you're going to do that. I'll just, I'll go take care of my medical stuff because you're clearly making sure I'm not going to succeed here. Yeah. So um, that was a kind of a sore spot. I did have a few of my guys come to my retirement ceremony at Wounded Warrior Battalion that were from my unit that I've known for years and, you know, we're solid dudes, but like, I don't, I don't remember my CO being there or anything. Initially, did you think, okay, I'm going to go over to the Wounded Warrior Battalion. I'm going to get better and that was my fuck hope. this place and I'll be gone on to my next duty station? That was my hope originally, but it kind of became apparent after being there that it, that wasn't going to happen. So what was the wife and the kids saying at this point in time? The kids were still kind of young. They were about 10, but it just, uh, it, that was a whole nother situation that wasn't the greatest at the time. So, so you, yeah, that I completely understand that part. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know up, a little bit about the, the backstory, um, yeah. which we don't have to go into. Yeah, I'd rather not. The, um, so you, Go through the whole med board process, I'm assuming. Yeah. Did and they... that's one of the one of the things that Wounded Warrior made sure that when they retired me, that I got my check from them from from the DOD retirement. Well, actually through the VA. Because you actually tried to Terra when they was at Wounded Warrior, they had a Terra notice out. And I said, Well, why don't I just Terra and get my forty five percent and then I'll file? Because that way I would have gotten my early retirement and my VA. Back up. What what is Terra? Terra is a, a early retirement option. Basically, if you have you know fourteen or more years, you can retire early, and they take percentage points off of what you would get for your retirement. Oh, okay, okay. Year. So Things the, like the, two the, points the, per year, you retire early or something. Yeah, the 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 opposite of the two points you get for every year you do after twenty. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I was like, well, shit, I'll just do that, and I'll go claim. It's because that way I would have gotten my, you know, I would have gotten whatever, 40% for DOD, and I could have gotten my full percentage from the VA. No, sadly, that's not right. If you retire, no, if you retire. The, the, the actual, because I've been fighting this and I've written the letters to Congress, the actual Title 10 that governs the CDRP, concurrent receipt of disability pay, specifically says you have to complete 20 years of good service. 
so even those well, people another who, hiccup. Yeah, those people. Another hiccup. Th those people who got out early, thinking they're going to get both paychecks. Sadly, they don't. They it's still the the greater of the two. So that it, sucks because if yeah. you do twenty, you get both. Yep, as long as you're fifty percent service connected or higher. So yeah, it, it does suck. Um, I didn't know that. that. That's an interesting point too, but yeah. Uh, those things need to change. Yeah, and like I said, I've sent last year about this time, every member of the House Armed Services Committee, because they're the ones who could do it, um, letters, actual no shit written letters through the mail huh. and never heard back from one of them. Not even a thank you for writing us letter. Oh, well, that's so awful nice of them. They can Thank all go eat a dick. Because I think that was 75 letters at 40 cents a piece. Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Fuck you. Yeah. Thanks for eating more of my money that you guys are already taking and not doing good work with. Hey, they got a little bit of that stamp money too. Don't worry about it. Uh, that's what I'm saying. They're, they took my uh, they took my 40 cents per letter. <laughs> so um, as you go through the med board process, did you get everything that you expected the first time around? Did you have to appeal? Did you have to go formal? I No, actually it was pretty, they did one, one thing they brought back and my doctor, my, my PES or PES evaluator looked at it and was like, no, we're sending it back. Um, but, it, and it was for it to go from 80 to a hundred. Oh, okay. And that was pretty, it was pretty easy. I, like I said, they did a, a fine job there. They made sure I had my first VA paycheck the month after i retired yeah which actually so it was, when it was a help but it was still like a 60 percent reduction in yeah. my normal pay i was going to get to that i was going to say though when i went through my first med board it was during it was before what you we would call des now uh the, yeah. the, the disability is, evaluation, evaluation system. System, which gives you both there were people getting out um with 60 percent from I, the army because it was mainly army here yeah and it took them two years to get their findings back for the va yeah that's but, yeah unacceptable and so yeah for for you you're a staff sergeant with 13 years in um you have dependent so you're getting e6 bah in southern california uh, uh probably around three thousand dollars a month Roughly, on top, yeah. On top of your pay. Sweet. So, so you were probably looking at about take home six thousand dollars a month, give or take. Um, in my point out, with everything, yeah, it was it was like seven. Yeah. So yeah, and this is what people do not understand about retiring out of the military. The only thing that you are paid is. If you do 20 years, you are paid half of your base pay, which and your is base your pay rank. Is about half of your actual pay while yeah. you're in. If you're a guy who does a lot of travel in the military and you're traveling all over the world, getting per diem in hotel per diem, that could or ease prisoners all over the world. I, there was one month I made 10 grand. Yeah, there, there. If you, if you're a Southern California-based sailor or marine. And you're an E5 to E7, you're going to make six to $7,000 a month if you have kids um, and you're living off base. You're also, and if you're traveling a lot, you're going to be getting paid a lot. And people do not plan their retirements off that. No, e they, 
And, they and don't. It, they need to do a better job of explaining it before yeah. tap. Before uh, an, taps. An E7 <laughs> with 14 and a half years in, I would have been making $4,100 a month before taxes. So that means the day that I retire at 20 years, which fortunately I was medically retired before then, I had, I would have been making two grand a month. Yep. That's about what my, my regular retirement would have been. Minus my BAH, which at the time I had a BAH of about $2,400 a month. Yeah. Um, and because I was TAD for years to Fort Sam, I was getting per diem, both housing and all that. So yeah, I was one of those guys that was probably pulling in close to seven grand a month and then dropped all that once my retirement went yeah. through. So yeah, that the the hurt of financially of getting out, did that play a role in your choice of moving to San Antonio? Uh, I didn't go to San Antonio first, actually. We basically, I got really short notice, like five days, like, hey, they're retiring you. I Ooh. actually had to, I actually had to tell them, no, you're not. You're going to give me my, my leave because I had like 120 days on the books. Oh, yeah. And I was like, they're like, we'll pay you for it. And I was like, no, you fucking won't because I wouldn't have gotten the BAH and the other stuff. I was like, you're going to move my EAS out. And and so they did everything they were supposed to. I ended up getting that. But we actually ended up going to uh, – I got paid for a month or two of it, I think, and ended up moving it out 30 days. Um, but we ended up going to Indiana to live with my cousin for a little while first because that was a huge financial hit. Yeah, And I just wanted to get my feet back on the ground. I was still going through medical issues. I wasn't better yet. I mean, yeah, I don't and, think it would be better. And but, I don't think, I don't think people understand that either. When you're medically retired, that just means the military doesn't want to waste any more time on you getting better. You. Yeah. yeah. They Once they're tired of trying to fix you, they'll sit, you, they're done. Then here's some money. Go unfuck yourself. Yeah. Go, go work on it. You're on your own outside or through your TRICARE. I mean, we all have TRICARE. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is nice. Um, so as so, you're as all of this in your life is happening, I know you from the film community here mm -hmm. in San Antonio. You were working with a buddy of yours doing some animation type stuff. Yep, with Husky Tiger with our little design studio. Yeah. When did that side of you start to develop? When honestly, I did like, I don't draw. I still don't draw, but I wrote and I did theater and, you know, we did performances and stuff all through high school and really enjoyed it doing the radio TV stuff. When I got to the Marine Corps, there wasn't really time for it or a place. It was, you know, I don't know, more of an alpha male jock environment, I guess. So, I really didn't make time for it or even I kind of separated that part of myself off and didn't touch it anymore. And so when I got back to Wounded Warrior, we started doing uh, it was uh, through the Tug McGraw Foundation. Uh, it was uh, a photo class. So I started taking pictures again and, you know, kind of reconnecting with that stuff. And then I started working again with the guys in 
I'm about to have a kid come home, so he might be loud when he gets home. No problem. Um, but I started working with some guys up in LA and that's actually where I met Fred was in, when I was in California, the guy I worked with at Husky Tiger, um, and doing the comic book stuff. Uh, so out in California is kind of when I reconnected with that stuff. And mostly it was at Wounded Warrior looking at internships and what do you want to do after? And I was looking at what I had witnessed and everything in corrections and law enforcement and where it was going. And I, you know, it was, starting to actually see that you know cities aren't treating their police departments like community servants and protectors their revenue generation systems um and i just didn't want to do law enforcement anymore I, I i didn't want to be a part of that problem because i didn't want to have to use the excuse and I, i'm lucky that i don't have to use the the reasoning hey i'm just feeding my family right um which is is what i hear more and more these yeah. days and and it's a sad thing when there used to be so much pride in the law enforcement community and there still is a lot um but there definitely need to be some changes oh i i 100 agree with you on that so those changes aren't necessarily at the, even at the departmental level it needs to happen in our community you know in our uh you know council chambers yeah i the laws need to be changed the whole scope and perception of police officers need to change from there and then they'll ingratiate themselves back into the community. Yeah, I have 100% agreement with you on that. But I do want to stay on the film thing for a little Yeah, bit yeah, yeah, please. Longer. So you, um, I know you too as a guy who's a huge comic book fan. and a, Love him, yeah. Did you have that um, while you were in the Marine Corps? You were... I would, I, would go, like, I would go read comic books, mostly trade paperbacks and stuff, but I still read a lot. I mean, especially flying. Man, are you kidding? I read so many books on airplanes. I read 96 books in a year. Oh, wow. One time. Because that's how long I was on a plane. So you, um, I know you went to one of the Comic-Cons. Did you ever go to any of them while you were in Camp Pendleton? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to go and write and do uh, help with uh, coverage for Fred and do some, uh, just take the kids down there. It's It's really cool. So you're out now you're back in indiana and something yep. tells me you weren't satisfied there at that point in your life at what point being freshly out of the marine corps oh in indiana no yeah. um I, that it was nice there it was just i was detoxing i made the choice to get off of a lot of the va meds because they were shutting my kidneys down sounds about right the va wants to kill you so they don't have to pay you anymore that's my theory um no mind you the va does good work and we're not gonna bash the va because i want my money from them but yeah they do try to kill you quite often uh yeah more often than not <laughs> um but it, it was it was a combination of things mostly personal family stuff that led me actually down to san antonio in general um you know, my, my ex-wife went down there to meet her, to live with her brother and stuff. And I went down there to try to fix stuff. And when I realized that wasn't going to work, it was like, well, I wanted to be here anyway. Let me try and make it and figure it out and get it to work. Because California is too expensive and I don't feel like going back to Indiana right now. Yeah. So I, I spent, you know, a good three or four years there kind of establishing myself in the community. And I just, I didn't, I saw the way things were going with cannabis regulation and a few other things and 
the film community in general and just wasn't what I was hoping for. Um, and that's my fault for expecting, you know, expectation will fuck you a lot of times. Yeah. Um, and so I had some family stuff up here. My mom needed some help. And so I came back here. So did, in your opinion, the way that San Antonio changed from uh, boot Marine going through MOS school to when you came back, did it feel negative? Did it feel like it grew too big, too fast? It, I didn't notice it at first when I moved there. It was more over the last three years that I was there. Like, I just know, like living in Alamo Heights and that little apartment I was in, I was right on the edge of Alamo Heights and you could just feel like you started hearing gunshots outside of your apartment and shit at night. And it's like, okay, um, this wasn't what I signed up for. Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you through, through the uh, entire pandemic, I keep an eye on local news for the other show. I do apocalypse diaries and it's not hilarious. I, it, no, I it up, is. I, I grew you up in Southern California. To laugh about it. Yeah, right, right near Westminster, which had a huge Asian Asian gang problem, uh, in twenty minutes away from you know South Central LA, thirty minutes if, if it was at night, and so gang violence and that isn't a surprise to me in any way, shape, or form. But man, every day there's a shooting or a stabbing on the yeah. front page of Ken's five uh, website. And it's just like, when did this start to happen in San Antonio? And apparently it's been there all along for my friends who have been around for a while. Just now that there's more and more rich or wealthy people moving in, it's becoming more and more of an issue for people that they want to bring to the forefront. Apparently. Yeah. It's, and it happens anytime with gentrification, which is kind of how the Breonna Taylor thing came about. And they're trying to gentrify that neighborhood, doing some targeted policing, real estate deals, all that stuff. But that's so just a mess. So let's go into this. So you've been in Indiana for what, a year and a half almost? Almost two years. Can you give me a one minute break? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pause it. All right. All right. So back to where we were. Uh, we just took a yeah. quick two second break. So, um, You've been up there for about two years. I can't believe it's already been two years. Isn't it crazy, man? Yeah. You, I know you went up there uh, without going into a whole bunch of details. There was uh, some land that your mom had, and you were fixing up a house on that yeah, property. Yeah, it had gotten trashed, and uh, so I was trying to help fix that and stay in another one and decided to start a retreat to do creative arts and stuff for veterans to help reconnect them with the stuff that helped me when I got out. So how is that going? And, or how was it going prior to March of this year, for lack of a better way of putting it? Um, it was, I got, had a setback with the septic system. I ended up having to, to do some, uh, some repairs to that, but, uh, it, it was going well. And then the COVID kind of shut everything down and, uh, even stalled fundraising efforts on the house. So that, that actually a second house may not even be an option anymore. Oh, wow. uh, if we can get the funds for it to get renovated. So were you, were you going to buy it or, okay. So this was one of the ones that needed to get fixed. The 1927 farmhouse. Yeah. They had gotten trash. We were going to use as transitional space for veterans and event space. And then actually the plan had been to, uh, Airbnb it like 15, 20 days out of the month so people could come and 
go to the local wineries and stuff. And then that would help fund other events so that I didn't have to do any fundraising. And people got to see where their money went. Like they could see the arts and stuff, the projects people worked on, things like that. So now explain to people what the property is like, because you've told me a little bit about it's a old farm property with some water features. So it's about six acres. There's a house up front by the highway that is the old Tollmaster's house for US 150. Um, so that's a cool little piece of history. And that's the one we actually may have to get rid of. But uh, then there's another house on the property that I actually grew up on, uh, that I grew up in, that I'm living in and restoring to. So once the kids are graduated, we can use that for more event space and transitional housing. And then at the bottom of the hill, there's an orchard and a lake and room for a bonfire and a camp where we hold our events and stuff. So what do you see if everything goes right, say 2021, the COVID crap tapers away? Um, what do you see if, if you can get the funds to do this, that it's going to be? Well, regardless of getting that, that house funded or not, I'm already working on a... Uh, a songwriter workshop with uh, a few different recording artists out of Nashville and Los Angeles. Um, I don't want to give their names yet because we haven't set a date or anything, but they're, you hear them on the radio, you hear them out in town um, and they're veterans as well. Um, and they're actually hopefully going to be doing a tour through here where we'll do the songwriting camp for the weekend and then they'll do a gig down in new albany or louisville where they'll play some of those songs and do a full set from either the artist or the band oh nice nice so and, and tie that into fundraising as well so then we got a joke workshop and then actually i got contacted by a few people uh a motorcycle club i ride with uh we're gonna look at doing a spring rally around the time the derby goes and and do some uh it's it's called the Freedom Warrior Militia. They uh, the mission is to honor the fallen by helping the living. So like two weeks ago, we all rode out and helped a guy who's lost his wife to cancer and cleaned up his property and stuff, and you know made sure he didn't need anything else. And then uh, we do warrior rides and stuff to local VFWs and legions and meet Gold Star families and share stories with them and let them you know share stories with us about the person they lost so that we know they know that they're still cared about and that their son or daughter or their husband wife uncle whoever it is isn't forgotten oh right on right on so are you um going to do the 501c 501c3 thing or it's already mine's already established i've got oh, okay. stuff i just don't have the bank account and all that stuff yet because mm -hmm. i'm working on the property and um it's mostly just me well, so, well, definitely when you know, let me know and I'll post it on all our, our social media. So when you start fundraising I mean, and stuff like that. Yeah, I put them out and I do, uh, I, I'm going to send it out to Hero Sports too, because those guys are awesome. Nice. So one of, the thing, one of the things I completely forgot about, and you kind of hinted at it with the, all the swimming comments. So in 2010, the DOD created the Warrior Games, which is basically a Paralympic type uh event for people who fell under their individual services wounded warrior communities whether yep. you were wounded in combat uh sick injured ill all of that you um participate in se several sports so what was it three years ago now Give or take. I, I participated in the games in 2015 
so you so i did the marine corps trials in 2015 i was supposed to go to the games but my personal issues prevented me from and my recent retirement prevented me from getting what i needed to get to go so i just did the trials so how did you feel about the adaptive sports they are awesome i actually have offered um i need to send another email and uh thing out to the navy team and the marine corps simplify fund uh, to offer them, I want to let them come out and camp and do, you know, if they want to do cycling or do, do swimming at the lake, I'm trying to get some uh, lanes installed. Oh, nice. On my half that we can remove and put in so that people can actually do laps there. Um, so, so you and I've worked with the same swim coach, Tracy. Oh, yes. She's my favorite. Oh, she's everyone's special favorite little coach. Um, did you take away a lot from the adaptive sports program that the Marine Corps had then? Yeah, actually getting back in the pool was one of the best things I did just because it made me feel semi-normal again. Nice. So yeah, did you able to reconnect with something I did before? And that was one of the hardest things was not being able to do the thing, all the stuff that I'd like to go do before, like ride horses. And I mean, I just got back on a motorcycle for the first time in 16 years um, yesterday. That's right. You said that you were actually going to go for a ride before we uh, talk today when I called yeah, you earlier. Yeah, a little bit today, too. Um, it, it was nice. It's it's interesting being back on it. My balance is still not what it was before, but um, it feels good. So with the swimming, are you doing that now in your lake? Uh, yeah, we do when it's warm enough. We have a Y down uh, down the road, too, and the high school has – actually, our, our middle school has the pool now, but – um, if we want to use it for events, all we have to do is fill out a building use form oh, and nice. we can use it to train as well when it's so, open. So as I said before, as I said, up until uh, March of this year, how has life up there been affected by the pandemic? It's weird. Um, this plant, a lot of people don't, we're rural too, so it hasn't really hit us as hard, I don't think. Um, but like when you go across the river to Louisville, they're freaking the fuck out constantly. And it's, it's really weird. Like when I went to go get the motorcycle recently, I got to drive through Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Georgia and Kentucky, Louisville area, they're panicking. But once you get past them out into the country, it's like, what COVID? Like, I didn't see a mask. I didn't say it's, it's, it's really weird. It's kind of like that here. The way they report the numbers and stuff, too, I don't know. The whole thing's just, everything stinks. I think we need to start over. Uh, <laughs> okay. So um, do you, do, it again. do you, uh, what's your take on what, because I know you have some very interesting theories on, on a lot of different things. Um, without going full Alex Jonesy, what do you? <laughs> well, you don't want me to talk about the lizard people, man. No, uh, he's, he's a dude, man. He's entertaining for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I consider him a conspiracy entertainer. Yeah, definitely. But you know, a lot of the things that they label as conspiracies or people still call conspiracies have been proven, proven through oil dumps. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, they called MK Ultra a conspiracy for years, decades. They called Operation Paperclip a conspiracy, bringing Nazis back to the states for decades. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just like, oh yeah, we did that. I always Best say this, space it, bitch. It, you know, it, it, 
it's a conspiracy till it's not. Yeah. And so, you know, all this stuff in the, in the fifties, they were able to bring back an army of Nazi scientists, give them new identities and, and disseminate them into our society. I don't find it so hard to believe that a lot of this other stuff that they're labeling is like the Wayfair and the other stuff, like the, the extremes, there's extremes on it, but I don't find it hard to believe that there's some truth to it. Yeah. So do you, do you buy the narrative that with the virus that it's as dangerous or as deadly as that the only way to survive the virus is to do exactly what we're doing right now? Um, The, the, Educated professionals that I've read and talked to have told me basically that, yes, the virus is in the wild, it's dangerous, but what we are doing is far more damaging to our society than just letting people go about their lives and making the vulnerable people, not making them, leaving it up to the vulnerable people to protect themselves, not making it harder for them, but... I mean, with technology and everything, the way we have it these days, the vulnerable people could stay isolated while everybody else continues to function. Exactly. And I, I had a, I had another guest on, a friend of mine who was a recon corpsman. And uh, basically, his take was the worst idea or the worst thing that you could possibly do is to put an epidemiologist in front of heading, heading up the response to an infectious virus because... He's they're going to want to put every protocol and procedure in place possible to stop the spread because they're scientists less so doctors and what i mean by that is an epidemiologist isn't someone treating patients they're no he looking, just portion. he's like yeah you're gonna die yeah and <laughs> according to my buddy who's worked with a ton of them was saying basically the way epidemiologists look at the world is everything is trying to kill you and we have to take the most extreme measures possible in order for you not to die. Where an infectious medicine doctor would have been a correct choice. My, my problem with the whole thing is I've always been taught to listen to people's words and watch their actions and see if the two match up. And if the two don't, then you believe the actions. Exactly. And the words aren't matching the actions right now. Yeah. And I mean, I can tell you again, doing the apocalypse diaries for 168 days straight, I was steeped. And I mean, I'm still doing the show. It's just, I couldn't, I couldn't maintain doing every single day. So I cut it back to three days a week. There you go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. The, the numbers of the numbers that I pay attention to are active cases, which is a misnomer to say, and serious and criticals. Mm-hmm. Those are typically the only people that are going to die. Yes, people are dying at home, but the percentage right now of you or I well, getting sick and becoming serious or critical is 0.54%. If it's this pervasive and unavoidable and everything else, then we need to be reporting it the same way we did the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the to, to your thing about control um, earlier was we don't have tickers for car accident fatalities. We don't have tickers for influenza uh, positive tests. We don't have tickers for smoking deaths, deaths or drinking yeah. deaths or cancer deaths or obesity yeah. deaths or heart attacks or infant deaths or any fucking thing else. Yeah. And, and, and to speak to the flu deaths, the flu's disappeared. 
it it is what it is. I will t- I will stand by this comment. Do you know how long it took us to kill off smallpox? Uh, hundreds of years. The entirety of human history up until the point we did. True. So what so makes us think? years after the after the raft uh, with Noah's boat on it, and uh... so what makes us think we're going to kill off COVID in uh, eighteen months? Because science, man. Yeah, Dark matter, bitches. Did you see that on the? I, I don't know if I shared that with you. If not, I'll send it to you soon. It's an article that says that dark matter may not exist, but that information has mass. Information has mass. Information has mass. Okay, this is getting creepy, man. I mean, we, yeah, don't get me started on crazy things like, uh, yeah. So, like simulation theory. Yeah, we could go down that rabbit hole. Um, if if a community, if a simulation can be powerful, what is it? If a simulation can be powerful enough where the people in the simulation think that the simulation may be a simulation, then it means that there is a set of civilizations that can make a simulation that could the people in the simulation could, and it's like, so are we in the simulation or are we it's a box inside a box inside a box inside a box inside a box? Exactly. I'm so, you. so to, to all of that, um, COVID has not been a big issue for you up there. Day to day life, day to day life. I don't leave the property much anyway. No. I take the kids to school when they have school. That was the biggest challenge was the kids not going to school and then being home all the time. My my uh, girlfriend I live with, or we live together, she lives with me, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, her working at home all the time has been awesome. Like I've never lived with somebody before that I get along with all the time that doesn't hate my guts. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's been an interesting. It's actually 2020 hasn't been bad for me all in all. It's been bad for the world, but me personally, my day-to-day life, it hasn't. I haven't done as much body painting as I wanted to do. Yeah, you, you like, were big into that. I haven't done any canvassing since I got, since this shit started. So I'm starting to work on that some more. Um, I hope to go to South Africa next year for the, uh, or not South Africa, the, uh, Austria for the World Body Painting fi- uh, Championships and get canvas there. That would be awesome. Nice. So what about, because um, we we touched on Brianna Taylor a couple times. So during the pandemic, we had a little thing called George Floyd um, happen. Did you I guys see any any unrest up there in your area? Ours was more focused on Brianna Taylor because um, that's been going on forever. But they that was added into it. Yeah. So I mean, the riots have been. I've, I haven't gone over there when they're going on. I haven't gone to any of the protests. Um, I have friends who have, I watch the feeds. I try to gather my information from as many sources as possible and kind of disseminate what's actually going on. But, uh, it's just a shit show and it's the city's fault. What, well, I was going to say, what's, what's your view? So as someone who was trained in restraint and, you know, dealing with people in jail who may or may not try to he was cuffed behind his back he should have been sat up and not put on his stomach i've was taught from the very beginning in every class i've ever gone to positional asphyxiation is a thing 
especially for heavy dudes. And George Floyd wasn't a little dude. And if somebody's telling you I can't breathe, you get him a fucking paramedic. So what that do you way say? The clear and the paramedic goes, yeah, no, he's fine. He can breathe. His heart, his systolic, and his whatever is fine. But to sit there and laugh about it and to actively deny people from helping somebody that's begging for help, whether they're on drugs, whether they're a felon, whether he just raped my grandma, he's a living human, breathing person. And, and honestly, it was all over a $20 bill. They let him die over a $20 bill. So what do you say to the cops that are armchair quarterbacking this and saying, well, you know, we hear people say all the time, I can't breathe. I was a non-lethal instructor. I've heard people say I can't breathe all the time when I spray them in the face, when I do other things. You know what I do to the people that say they can't breathe? I verify it because like they say, when they ask you, do you have anything on you? You don't know if they're lying. That's a good, that's a valid point. And I wanted to get your take on it because I mean, I know corrections you're doing um, violent takedowns. If you have to make sure they're alive and make sure they don't escape. So that's a, a very serious concern. So what, what's your take on the response from the public? It's proved to me that cognitive dissonance is real and it exists on a massive scale. And that the ideology of police officers is deeply ingrained into who they are as being Catholic or Italian or anything else. It's not a job. You know, it's a calling. It's, uh, you know, you ask people, it's kind of like being a Marine. You know, you ask people, are you, what do you do? Oh, I, I work at the factory or I, you know, I'm a nurse over here. I, I work as a nurse at this. You ask people, what do you do to a cop? And they say, oh, I'm a police officer. I am this. Yeah. Um, and it's hard when you so deep, it's, it's just like the Catholics and the little kids. They don't want to, they can't accept that something hor so horrific is happening right in front of their eyes. And some of them can and can't say anything because they'll be kicked out or ostracized or blacklisted because they turned on the brotherhood because it's us against them. Well, I mean, I, sure I've had a lot of people unfriend me because of my opinions that are police officers. I, I see a lot of people in the general public who are not police officers um, who fall into one of one particular uh, political belief that are very, very blindly if the officer did it, he had a reason to do it. And therefore we shouldn't be crushing the blue, it. no matter who. Yeah. yeah. And, and th that's the thing is it's crazy to me that they, people can't see that that mentality exists on both sides. Anybody, but Trump, well, the officer must've been right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the cognitive dissonance is so wild on both sides and the division is getting wider. Yeah. And it's getting wider too. Yeah. Um, as far yeah, as I think, I, the funniest ones to me are the guys that have the thin blue line sticker and then the don't tread on me sticker come and take it. Yeah. It's know, it's literally like, fucking think is going to come and take it. And I know I will get shit for this statement because I have friends on both sides. Uh, so do you. Oh yeah. It's, it's to me seeing Biden Harris with a black lives matter sign, a Biden Harris sign next to a black lives matter sign. Yeah. Um, there, there isn't like, two yeah, people in my the people that signed the crime bill and you know actively hid evidence 
in order to uphold a death penalty conviction. Yeah, but because both those things are very much against the current president, they seem to... It's okay, it's justified. Yeah. I actually had somebody on my news feed today tell me that sniffing kids wasn't as bad as talking about doing something creepy to a woman. They justified sniffing kids to justify their vote for president. So do you think that we're going to heal this? If let's just say Trump lose, ends up losing after all the legal battles and um, he leaves. The things that are in place and that are moving and the, the machinations that exist, if they do exist, have been working for over a decade. So I don't think we're going to see civil war overnight. But like you said, they'll scare us a little more next time. They scared us with 9-11, gave up a little control and a little freedom. They scared us with COVID. We're giving up a little more. They'll scare us with the next thing, and that's what the whole election and, and the whole election and campaigns on both sides have been based on fear. So let me ask you this: You, um, I forgot how old your kids are, but they're, they're okay. I was going to say they're in their teens. What are the conversations like when they see this shit? And like, Dad, you were a Marine. What's going on? I try to explain it to them as best I can. I, I believe in being honest with your kids and, you know, more, our job as parents is to prepare them for a life without us. And you never know when that's going to happen. And as 16, you're entering manhood. So we've started having more in-depth conversations about manipulation and control and looking at motives of people you're dealing with to, you know, protect yourself and the people you care about. So do you, so one of the things that I've, followed a lot you know i went from solitary slug to super active and also got into hunting and i feel yep. like we we don't have a true rite of passage i think you kind of did because you know going to the crucible and having that crowning moment me with the chief stuff yeah it was later in life but do you see a path where your boys are going to be able to have that passage into manhood uh, they're gonna yeah. have to find it on their own one of my kids isn't eligible for military service so that's not gonna be an option for them the other one's too smart to join the military so but i mean like something that you could do on the property with all the you're going back to nature do you i mean do you get where we i'm going with stuff, that? like we go camping and i make like uh with me getting this motorcycle my son's become very interested in that so i you know i had to do some repairs and modifications uh replace the taillights things like that and he came out and I taught him how to do it. Showed him, you know, when I had a challenge where I went to figure out what I needed to do and and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I mean, but do you think that, that setting kids up for rites of passage is a good thing? <sighs> Whether, I mean, it doesn't have to be through a controlled military environment. Just something where there's a delineation. Allowing children the opportunity to fail in a controlled environment is a good thing yeah because i will tell you one thing i've noticed from all these riots and protests or riots because I, I i delineate that the minute that a protest starts burning or throwing rocks that is now called a riot kids that also depends on who fired first i will give you that because the second i'm fired at me me throwing a, if a, you shoot at me and i throw a brick at you it's not a riot. It's self-defense. Right. No, I'm you're saying just trying to get me out of there because you don't want me there. You can absolutely go fuck yourself. Yeah. But you know what? You know where I'm going with that. I do. I do. I absolutely do. 
Um, but yeah, that's but that's another thing. You know, the narratives get so twisted and pushed, and the the outright lies that occur, it's just hard to yeah piece together the truth anymore. Where I'm going with that is there's been a whole bunch of videos from you know. 25 to 40 year olds screaming at uh cops you know calling them calling a black cop every every word in the book to the people who lost their shit on twitter with videos after ruth gator Bader, blah, blah, blah. rgb died people should still be allowed to duel if people I, were still I'm, allowed to duel then a lot of this shit wouldn't be happening but where i'm going we with that is in place and the the voting that we have done has put our society in this as a position that it is in yeah and it's the perfect example of hard times breed strong men strong men breed peaceful times peaceful times breed weak men weak men breed hard times yeah where i was going with my my whole diatribe though was if you look at those videos and then you look at the videos of the kids throwing temper tantrums in the middle of walmart there's a very valid correlation yeah yeah absolutely. like you're like i have seen you yeah you were you're a five-year-old you're the kid whose mom didn't whip his ass in the middle of the aisle yeah. where i feel yeah. like we're, we're losing something to where a 40 year old screaming at the top of her lungs that rgb died in a car while driving and immediately makes me flash to oh that was a they, kid at walmart that had no discipline in their life fundamentally and philosophically and that's one of the things i have had to learn because i as you know i spend about 95 percent of my time in pretty not i wouldn't i don't even want to say extensive but in in some sort of substantial pain i deal with pain on a regular daily basis for pretty much the rest of my life pain is our greatest teacher Yes, it is. The kid will keep, you can tell a kid all day long, don't touch that stove, it's hot. Don't touch that stove, it's hot. They are not going to learn the lesson until they burn their fingers and hurt their hand. Exactly. And we as a species are working towards the aversion of pain. We want to completely eliminate pain from our lives. That means in my, in my as the the desire to eliminate pain from your life is the desire to eliminate teaching from your life. I will agree with you 100% on that. Um, and when we try to stop or averting, you know, when we avoid pain at all costs as a society, when we're presented with it, our brains explode and we're not taught to deal with it. It's like exposure therapy. Yeah. Now, you know, you got to learn how to manage it. Now, I don't know whether you are more like me who doesn't really care about the election. Uh, my my candidate lost. Uh, I care more about the local elections, and a lot of those actually turned out pretty decently in my eyes. So, Well, I, and I was going to ask about that. Uh, like for me, I care more about what's going on in my neighborhood than I do. Uh, yeah. My, my county and stuff, all that ended up pretty well. Uh, in my eyes, a lot of the good judges got retained. Some of the ones that weren't got uh, let go. Are you so, in? Are you in a? Oh God, what's the word? Incorporated city, or are you in like county? I'm in the control? county. I'm okay. in between two cities, so I can shoot guns and burn stuff and do what I want. Nice. So, do you do you think that this debacle that we're calling the 2020 election is going to get resolved anytime soon? I think it'll go to the courts. Um, 
I don't think anybody is uncomfortable enough to go to uncomfortable enough yet to go to war. Yeah, no, I definitely don't. I mean, until the power until we start getting rolling blackouts, actual food shortages, which we'll see here in the next three to five years, I think. Um, did you ever, did I tell you uh, to look up, do you remember the election, uh, not the election, um, did you watch the last debate between Biden and Trump? Uh, I caught clips of it. When at the very beginning. Oh, yeah, 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 you, you told me that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you get a chance to read that synopsis? Yes, I did. And replace smallpox with COVID? Yes, that very, very creepy thing. And again, with the conspiracy theory part, you were actually part of that exercise which makes we, it even slightly I, creepier we need that exercise as part of an at working group on base for a task force we were doing um which is why i remembered it so when he came because people don't say that's not a common phrase oh, it's going to be a dark winter we're going to have a dark winter no it's going to be cold wet miserable yeah. unless you live in alaska and even that i mean i've, I've asked around like just co-locally how many people how often do you hear the term dark winter never why oh i was just curious because i heard it somewhere you know without trying to put a finger on on the scale and say oh because biden said it during the debate just yeah i heard it somewhere and it just it seemed like a really weird phraseology and people like yeah that's not a normal thing that you say yeah And, and even if you were to and Clinton it, was on the oversight panel, Hillary Clinton was on the, the congressional oversight panel to that. Okay, so this is where we dive into the crazy conspiracy. I'm just saying. Yeah. This was no, one. They had ten years to plan. Well, they had twenty years, wasn't it? Oh yeah, twenty years. So yeah, almost. I mean, and everyone is concerned that we're going to have the second wave of COVID next year. Because that exercise went down in July of 2001, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly. Right? Oh, so, so right then. Like, it, if I'm not mistaken, it was either right before or right after. I'd have to look it up, but yeah, it was I right, think, right after 9-11. Yeah, I, I, think think it, I think it was right after 9-11. I think the exercise itself happened before 9-11 or right before or right after. I, I'd need to look it up. Yeah, but, but regardless, it, it was... It's creepy as shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, verbatim what's happening right now. You, you would not say, even if you were in Alaska, you would not say we're going to have a dark winter. You're going to say the winter is going to be dark. Yeah. That, that, that phraseology just does not. And that's another thing, you know, picking up in investigations and stuff. They teach you, listen to how people say things. Cause 98% of the communication that occurs is the inflection tone and how it's worded together not actually the content of the message well in you know they teach uh in leadership and in um medicine that uh what is 80 percent of communication is nonverbal. yep so it, not just inflection but also where your eyes darting to the whole body language thing and even in the context of why the communications being said why is it why are you having this conversation in this hallway sometimes yeah. uh, it's so you can get really deep into these things all of that being said are you ready for the civil war which side are you going to take um it <laughs> i'm <depends>. kidding <laughs> really I mean, I mean, 
I I appreciate. I honestly, people think people need to think about what side are you going to end up on. Well, and if the division gets any deeper, it's not going to be solved with anything other than blood. So back to the the rite of passage. Um, one of the things I talked about way early on in Apocalypse series in like that first month, because I had the opportunity to do some hog hunting. That sadly the hogs did not want to go get hunted, <laughs> but uh, um, they. The, this idea of primal skills. And so to me, he who's going, if we're going to go into a shooting war and you don't have any, and you're on a side that doesn't have any primal skill set, you're not going to have a good outcome. That being said, no, no it's going to end poorly. That being said, I, I do think that um, like where you're at, there's no reason to pick a side. You're as long as you can defensively maintain your perimeter let the world fucking burn at this point in time. And I don't mean that in like, I want to see everything collapse and fall apart. But what I do mean by that is simply. Not my monkeys, not my circus. Yeah, this is not a fight that I think that we should be having, let alone that makes any sense. We have mechanisms to, if you want to go the AOC route, we, there are mechanisms in the constitution that will allow you to amend it. Yeah. And, and, and make those things legit. We need, a, we need a convention of states to do term limits is what we need, but that yeah. ain't going to happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, and honestly, I've been thinking in my head, uh, what laws on the books that are major groundbreaking laws like the uh, Voters' Right Act, Voters' Rights Act, the, uh, oh God, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, a lot of the civil rights, uh, the Civil Rights Act, that's the other one I was thinking of. They all, these major changes in how we conduct ourselves as Americans had to have an amendment first. The 13th, the 14th Amendment allowed for the, that groundwork. Yeah. And well, we need, to, we need to limit the telephone, the tech companies the way the telephone companies are limited with our data. That's yeah. the next big fight. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, we said the COVID word. We've talked about some conspiracies. I'm not big enough to have YouTube's attention yet. But if I if this was someone who sat well above me, but say half, say three million less viewers than Joe Rogan, yeah, you would. Th this would definitely be a flag podcast. Oh, most definitely. Because God forbid. I mean, who knows? The, the censorship is real and it really bothers me. Yeah. Because, you know, they quit being a private company the second they invited everybody to join. Yeah. You can't let everybody join and then say, okay, but you can only say these three things. Yeah. I mean, in so would they the put themselves in that position. But now what they're doing, I read an article the other day that made a lot of sense. They do all this stuff so that the government will regulate them, right? Because right now they're pretty – there's stuff on place they could use, but they're pretty much unregulated as far as startup and things like that. Right. So they come in and like, they do all this bullshit to get regulated. And by getting regulated and losing that little bit of money, they make starting it up a competition so cost prohibitive that they basically lock down the market. Well, here's a Which here's we a really already have. Hold on one second. You too quick. Here, here here's a very uh, so I have a lot of I have a lot of friends who are like, well, you know, just people will start something new if YouTube goes bad. Well, here's the deal. YouTube's I think uploads 
I want to say a thousand hours of video every second. Yeah. Um, the pure technology and physical requirements to manage that is pro just to even go out and buy the hard drives. But we can't figure out who voted for who. Yeah. But where I'm going with that is what type of startup could ever afford to compete with that? To do an hour of video a second on, on a, you know, have that much capacity. That's insane amount of data that YouTube, Google, they've all grown beyond just a private. Company. We have two governments now. We have our tech government and we have our government government. Yeah. I, 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 I'm pretty sure when we link this, even though it's going to be a couple of weeks from now, when we link this to Facebook, to the Facebook page, if the It'll election, flag. if the election isn't resolved, there's going to be that little banner that you're seeing on everything. Now you're going to get fact checked. Good. Because I'm probably lying 95% of what I'm saying. And it's going to say that it's missing context. Yeah. If you read some and you can't figure out the context, then you probably need to put down the voter registration. But in whose context are is it missing? Because there's another good point. Is it my context? Is it the dude at Google or Facebook that's programmed the algorithm? Is, is it factual or not? If it's factual, shut the fuck up. Is it Adam's context? Is it my viewer's context? So which con who, where is the context being missed? Exactly. It's also like with the COVID, the YouTube had issues with anyone saying uh, coronavirus or COVID. And I use the code word because I'm a huge DC TV fan crisis because it just so happened that crisis on infinite earth became, was out at the end of January. So I was like, yeah. okay, I'll just call it the crisis. But now it's like you can't go against WHO guidelines. Like they'll flag you for that. Well, they've flipped so on many that times. Either. And that's another thing that bothers me. We've had time to vote on all this stuff. Yeah. These well, edicts need to stop. Well, I like I said, I wouldn't care about I, I don't care about the presidency, but I would feel more comfortable not caring about the presidency if Congress would do its job. How hard yeah. is it for Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer to write a bill that literally says if we are trying to help people? All Americans who paid or who made less than $100,000 in 2019 by 2019's tax returns as of 1 May, they got to have all that to the end of the year, there. you get $1,200 a month till 31 December. There's your bill. I think I just wrote it for you. I think it was like 15 to 20 words. Go raise your hand or do you hit your little electric button? Let the world know that you will or will not support that and then send it to the president, whoever that's going to be. And but that's no, what he was asking for. Yeah. But no, somehow they're writing a 4,000 page document in 24 hours. They're taking amendments from all the other shit they didn't get passed and stapling it to that bill. Well, and again, think about 9-11. I think they said it took 72 hours to write the Patriot Act. <laughs> That's absolute insanity. Nobody could read that in 72 hours. Yeah. So but, writing it physically impossible. But what the, but so what's been said is that they've had that there's like libraries of contingencies. Like, okay, so if this happens, we have this to pull from, 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 and they can put together a bill, like you said, That's that cannot be read. That that no one can understand. 
and have it done like that. But yet on our side, on the military side, what do we do? What, so as someone who took an oath to protect and defend the constitution, if this shit does go sideways, it's like. Where I, do I fall? Yeah. What choice do I make? Yeah. Do I do a Kyle Rittenberg or whatever the fuck that guy, that little dumbass's name was? and go stand out in front of someone's shop and protect it that's Hell. gonna come down to kind of this i hate to say it that i ha that'll go down the same way world war ii went down where people that are in service most of them will probably say i took an oath feed my family if i step out of this i'll lose my security because yeah. that's what most people are worried about i'm gonna lose my security but I mean, I mean for us for those of us who still actually believe in that oath but are out uh, like, I have so many problems with that kid up in, in Wisconsin. One, I think his parents should be the ones on trial, not him. Because why the hell did you let your kid go to begin with? There should be some responsibility on the parents. In my, opinion. I still am not certain how the whole thing went down. If he was firing in self-defense, then good. I think. But I, 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 I do think I civilly. around with a gun in my truck for hunting for years yeah. when as a kid. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, but no, that's, that's not even the issue. It's I I don't know. I, I'd have I, to see how the whole thing went yeah. down and how he handled himself. But I don't yeah. him going out there, especially if it was help clean up his neighborhood or doing the protest thing. I get that as a teenager, and if he needed to arm, clearly he probably needed to arm himself to protect himself. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know because I can I can make the argument that there were a whole bunch of other armed guys that didn't get into a gunfight that night. And there were That's a whole true. bunch of people there that were not armed that didn't get into a gunfight that night. That is true. So I, and I, I, Hey, I think if you have a right to open carry and you're willing to do it and take that risk, then do it. But also my problem goes to as a parent of a 17 year old, would you let your, or of a 16 year old, would you let your kid drive 20 minutes across the state lines to go was Not he even. going to his job? No, I mean that that was she drove. That, I mean, because in all seriousness, that could happen to me here. Yeah. My kid could get a job over in Kentucky, and yeah, with all no. the shit go, with all the shit going on in Louisville, if he was legal to carry a gun and had to go to work or wanted to go over and help his friends clean something up, I'd be like, "Hey, ride strap, people are fucking nuts." Yeah. If it was legal for him to, because well, I trust my son and how he operates. Here's one of the things that came out in the depositions was that his mom drove him through the riots to go do what he was going to do. And the gun wasn't theirs. He borrowed the gun from some random, I don't know if it was a friend or a random guy. That's weird. Yeah. So it, to, to me, there's an issue. Of, I, I'm of the opinion that any gun law is an infringement. I should be able to pick up a, a machine gun and protect yeah, myself. And I, I I'm, not, I'm not worried about what he did. That'll come out in court. I'm saying yeah. from a parent's perspective, which I'm not, I still think that it's like, why would you just let your kid go do that? I'd probably, with, I would go with them Yeah. and be, be at least the one armed probably. But yeah. I mean, again, it's all a matter of how much you trust your child. Because I know some my my sixteen year olds are more responsible than most of the thirty year olds I served with. Yeah, and I think there is that, that everything that's come that out with that arbitrary age number, that whole thing. Yeah. If they're going to do an arbitrary age number, they need to make it across the board, not this twenty one to smoke, sixteen to vote, oh, yeah. fifteen I, to yeah. fifteen to fuck, nineteen if you want to drive faster than forty five miles an hour at night. You know, it's the the huh? arbitrary. 
basically the arbitrary age rules need to disappear. Yeah. I think if we're going to play, uh, if we're going to have an arbitrary age, the arbitrary age that would be the most important would be 18. You can legally, you can legally vote. You can legally, uh, join the or military and, back to 21. Yeah. But what I'm saying is at, at 18, you can go to jail as an adult, you can vote and you can join the military. Then you should be able to do everything else. Yeah. I don't see why not. Move everything back to consider an adult 21. Yeah. Well, God forbid. But the they're pol- trying to they're trying to move the age to smoke or drink or do anything else up while move the age to vote down. And that's yeah. insane. Well, and you know, you know that they would never allow uh the age to move up to 21 for being an adult for criminal reasons. They want to keep those prisons filled. Yeah, they got to keep their labor force. That's another thing I, I've read while I was doing research is that basically about 50% of our made in America products are made in American prisons. That's disturbing. That and is- actually there are states that like, uh, I think California is one of them where if they don't, they have private prisons there and they have contracts with those private prison companies that if they don't give them a certain number of prisoners to keep their prison full, yeah, they, they have to pay they, that company yeah. millions of yeah. dollars. Actually, California did ban their private prisons. I think it's, I know Arizona's big on that. And I think Nevada too. I'm glad, well, California did one smart thing. Well, and you know, to me, there's, I'm not a big fan of government intervention in a lot of things, but if they're the ones establishing the laws, they should be the ones responsible for um, the punishments that come out, not not handed off to a private prison. It's why I'm also against contractors. Uh, yeah. Going overseas. Contractors overseas. Yeah. Yeah. It's I. Yeah. For State Department, yes. For DoD specialized services, like in Iraq, we had a whole bunch of guys out there from either Lockheed Martin or Gr- Northrop Grumman fixing some of the uh, electronic systems that were far beyond any of our guys' knowledge that they were using to jam IED. So they were brand new shit. Yeah, that makes sense. But DOD should never have private military gunmen. That's no, like the, maybe a terp or something. But yeah, but the the responsibility to go to war and to conduct war is that of the United States military. We should never, in my opinion, sell it. No. never auction it off to someone else. It's why I have an issue with drones. Yeah, people think I'm nuts. I think we should ban uh, the use of armed drones. Well, what about the terrorists? Well, first off, we know the drones miss a lot. But second off, if we're going to do extrajudicial uh, executions on the people that we believe are going to commit an attack on the United States, that should be a valuable enough thing to commit U.S. military forces to. Yep. Not, not, a, not a robotic drone. I think it just makes killing people too easy. Absolutely. And it's one of my fears with the people who want to defund the police that they're going to See I get a whole bunch of issues come from that that are law. Of you un- can't do the defunding the police till you do the restructuring of the laws and codes and and yeah. reimagine what it is to be a police officer in scope and power. Yeah, they're not I mean, mental health workers. They're not social workers. I like the idea of having social workers going out to answer suicide calls. Yeah, I, I you know I'll things say, like that. I'll say this that's much: not a police I, officer's job. I am. And maybe with your perspective, you'll understand it. I do get a lot of hate from friends who are cops. I don't like saying that 
police our law enforcement. I just don't believe that that is their role. And I do think words have meaning. When you tell someone that they're enforcing something that gives them a sense of power, the factual way that our government is set up is the people who wear the badges who arrest you are policing the laws. The only people who are capable of enforcing the law as a is, judge. The, is the judiciary because he can then give you a sentence for a violation yep. of that law. Well, after the uh, Broward County thing and the Supreme Court ruling that the police officer is not uh, legally required to place himself in harm to protect the citizens of the town that he works in, um, that in my eyes just made law enforcement officers armed tax collectors at that point. They're yeah. not required to protect the public. All they do is generate revenue for the city. Yeah, I, I can I can agree with you on that. And I do have respect for people who would put the badge on. That being I said, I do too. I mean, a lot I, of them are good guys. It's just it's not their fault that the thing. But at some point, they're going to have to decide if they can keep. You know, I'm just doing my job. Oh, I don't agree with it either, but it's the law. Well, that and the simple fact that uh, I do have an I do have a belief that when it's all said and done, much like they say that as kids, you can be taught racism. You know, this race is bad. This race is bad. This race is bad. Um, what happens to cops that work twenty years and all that they get as a reinforcement is everyone every time they go out to. Um, to do their briefing, all they're being told is everyone wants to kill you. Everybody hates you. Your only job yeah, is to get home training. at night. They basically just show you video after video of a guy getting shot at a traffic stop. And I get it. It does happen. But statistically, it doesn't happen nearly as much. No. Now, you can take this year, but this year's an anomaly. Cops have been under attack this year because people believe that they were under attack. Yeah. But much like you were saying with the riot, if someone shoots at you, and you throw a brick at them, you, in your mind, you're self-defense. So we got Once deep. they get us to stop listening to each other, they've won. Yep. So hopefully this conversation, people watch it and we'll see that, you know, conversation. Maybe they'll work into some stuff. Who knows? Yep. So, man, on that, we're going to wrap this up. We've been on for you, man. Two, two and hours, two and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay. You still look beautiful. Now, um, so as I try to explain to people, because I'm get, this is brand new. So the channel's called Modern Ronin. The show's called After the Battle Campfire. And the reason why I started the titled it that was because I always thought that you know these warriors from days long gone who didn't have airplanes or you know ships that could get you back in two or three days. When you went on a campaign, you fought all day and then. You sat around the fire afterward and shared and your stories. Shared your stories. So the modern Ronin was loosely based off of the idea of what Ronins really were. No, they weren't all mercenaries. They all went off and did different things when they lost their master and they didn't commit seppuku. Um, so do you, to you, what does it mean to be a modern Ronin in your life? Oh, Jesus. Well, you could have told me you were going to ask me that beforehand. Um, <laughs> I like dropping it at the very end because everyone gives me the same thing. I don't know. I, I mean, the master, you know, after serving a master for so long, it's basically being a Ronin is, I don't know, the, the art of learning to serve yourself again. Yeah, 
I think that's an important thing. Well, man, thank you. We're going to stop the recording now. And again, right. This is a creepy person. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.